0: I think that the most important issue facing humanity is, is climate change or sort of environmental degradation more broadly, let's say. And at the same time, I think there's no point in trying to solve environmental problems that don't also improve quality of life that like help the human population. And so, you know, I think that when you focus on environmental issues, it's important to also sort of focus on the equity issues of like all humans should be entitled to certain standards of living. And so I think that if, you're trying to solve environmental issues without also focusing on the equity side like making sure that all humans are equally able to take care of themselves you know basically it's just not fair to not do those both at the same time and so that sort of informed the initial projects from the Hannel foundation is like looking for environmental projects that also improve standard of living that like helped folks and over the years we basically always wind up choosing solar projects because they just often are the most elegant solutions to those kinds of problems, where it's like, good for the environment, good for people, you know, clear win-win. And then after several years of supporting a bunch of different solar projects, we were like, we should just make this explicit. Because at a certain point, I just think solar is such an obvious solution to many human problems. I'm Alex Arnold, and this is the Rich Roll podcast. (laughs)
1: Roll podcast. Yeah, buddy, that's right. It's true. The free soul, a free solo global icon of athletic mastery, Alex Honnold is indeed back and in the house. I think at this point we can dispense with the bio, right? We all saw his death and gravity-defying ropeless ascent of El Cap on the big screen. It's a feat that landed Free Solo, a documentary Oscar, of course, and cemented Alex as truly one of the greatest athletes of all time. Alex came on the podcast three years ago, that was March of 2018, after his big climb, but actually before the movie had come out or I had had the opportunity to see the movie, to talk about all the things that he's been talking about ever since the film's release, his life, his relationship with fear and the pursuit of mastery. But I would suggest considering episode 351 as just a primer because today we explore a new side of Alex. A lot has happened since the whole free solo affair, obviously. So this conversation takes a little bit of a different tack, steering somewhat clear of the more well-trod terrain and topics that Alex has exhaustively fielded at this point to explore some of his life experiences and other interests post-Free Solo, as a storyteller, as a new podcast host, a climbing historian, an environmentalist, activist, husband, and more. It's such a good one. Definitely distinct from other conversations with Alex you may have enjoyed, and it's coming up in a few, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed, with tons of additives and, or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for a proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story. But basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, so this conversation is basically... Free Solo Free, focusing instead on Alex's environmental work with the Honold Foundation. We talk about the challenges of combating climate change and why his current focus and passion is on solar and renewable energy. We also discuss his new turn as a podcaster, co-hosting the newly released Climbing Gold, which is this special mini series of climbing-centric stories that explore the past, present, and future of the sport. In addition, among other subjects, Alex shares some interesting insights into climbing's debut at the Tokyo Olympics. But overall, this is a conversation about the responsibility of adventure. It's not enough to simply appreciate our natural world. We must also care for it, protect it, preserve it, regenerate it, all of us, and with our full attention. Alex is somebody I deeply admire. He's wise, he's remarkable. And my hope is that this conversation will inspire you to think more deeply about how you can positively impact the world we all share. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is me and Alex Arnold. Cool, man, are we good? Oh, we're rolling. Excellent, man. Oh, we're rolling. Um, um, yeah, we're already recording. Started. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah, good
0: to see you. Uh, do I need to worry about where anything is? Or?
1: I don't think so. Just worry about where the mic is, yeah, okay. but you know that because now you're a professional podcaster. Well,
0: I'm, I don't really do the, the technical side of it. <laughs> Actually, you do I bring, have to talk into a mic though. I bring nothing to the team except for the, witty you know, banter with the guest.
1: Well, I listened to like the first little, like the little trailer thing It's all, oh, you? You, know, you do the little like, hey, is this thing on? Or like, let's do take two or whatever. Yeah, you know, which
0: is fun. I actually, I don't know if I've heard it yet.
1: You haven't, oh, you haven't even listened to your own podcast yet. Really
0: <laughs> well, I been, I've been gone.
1: I but the know. idea, I mean, it's called climbing gold. The idea was the idea at the inception that it was gonna be more about the Olympics. And then that yeah, had the, to pivot a little bit.
0: Yeah, exactly. The right. idea for the podcast was to focus on the the road to the Olympics, sort of mm-hmm. the build up cuz going into 2020 it felt like climbing was having a huge moment. It's funny, yeah, I'm on the board of a climbing gym, uh, organization as well and and it felt like it was this huge moment for climbing cuz climbing's in the Olympics yeah. for the first time and it's like going off. Uh, obviously, COVID changed that quite a bit, and right. but so when we started talking about doing a podcast, it made sense as like to to explore sort of the history and the future of climbing during this moment. Mm-hmm. And then when the Olympics got pushed because of COVID, uh, we sort of went forward with it anyway, mostly because we felt like there were still interesting stories to tell. Yeah, but so. Now we're still doing. I think we're doing twenty episodes and the second ten, or focus more on the lead up to the Olympics. Right. Which we'll so it's be doing sort of like summer.
1: the the history and the untold stories and the kind of things that happen because so much of climbing occurs outside of the spotlight of the media completely. Well, right. And
0: so much of climbing history has occurred before there was media to some extent. Right. You know, before things were easily recorded or, or you know digitized mm-hmm. and shared. And um, and so there are just so many classic climbing stories that are sort of lost to history a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. Is it's pretty fun to uncover some of those and, and share some. And
1: so, did you have um, to be like a journalist and go and find these people and talk to them and have them tell their stories?
0: Like a very unprofessional journalist, right. <laughs> like a very uh, unskilled <laughs> a journalist. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, let's <laughs> not confuse journalism with <laughs> yeah, podcasting. Exactly, exactly. No, we. It's not fair to say that we did any journalism, but we, you know, we did uh, seek out interesting guests in different spaces, and mm-hmm. I think the thing that we're trying to sort of add to the space of climbing podcasting as it were yeah. uh, is a little bit more editing and, and a little bit more of a thematic focus like uh, you know, having multiple voices from different people in the same episode talking about specific themes to sort of help Educate about certain aspects of climbing and, and share a little bit about where where climbing has come from. Right,
1: um, and your co-host has he he did another podcast, right, on uh, Dirtbag yeah. Diaries or something yeah. like
0: that. Yeah, yeah. So my my uh, co-host is a Cahal who's mm-hmm. a, an actual professional podcaster. He actually right. knows what he's doing. He's the one that sent me the microphone that I used and told me how to set it up and how to <laughs> use everything. And uh, yeah, he, he's the one that that really. Uh, I mean, it really, the whole reason the podcast exists is because he he approached me about working on a project together, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, he's the perfect person to work with because right. he already knows how to do it."
1: You know? Was there a, an original plan before the Olympics got pushed that you would go to Tokyo and be uh, make covering the the climbing competition there part of the podcast? No,
0: so so fun story. Um, I am actually supposed to be going to Tokyo mm-hmm. to do commentary for the Olympic Channel. So. Right. Technically, I have a contract already with the actual Olympic committee or whatever uh, to go and do commentary for climbing. And so part of doing the podcast was because I personally felt like it would be a great way to learn how to commentate Uh (laughs) because, you know, I don't know anything about sports commentation, Uh, but I figured I'd learn before the Olympics. Uh And so the podcast seemed like a really great way to get to know some of the backstory, meet some of the competitors, learn, uh, you know, about their process. And, you know, so as it turns out, We haven't focused on that so far because uh, the Olympics got pushed. So we just decided to kind of wait and see on that side. But it's almost better this way because this way the episodes that we have recorded are like the deeper backstory and Mm -hmm. then allows us to sort of set the stage that when we get to the Olympic side of the podcast, there's already a good context for it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So somebody who doesn't know anything can listen to that. And then by the time the competition starts, they feel like they have a context for everything that's happening.
0: That's exactly the hope is that someone who's interested in the outdoors and has maybe climbed once or you know, just sort of a general interest could listen to the podcast, understand and appreciate the stories and still feel like they learned something important about the sport.
1: Right, Um, how do you feel in general about climbing being in the Olympics? I'm pretty into it. I mean, there
0: are a lot of climbers, particularly older climbers that are sort of crusty about it that think that it's a, you know, degrades the sport in some Mm -hmm. way or sort of, or really the fact that I'm calling climbing a sport. I think some climbers would take, take, take umbrage with that, you know, because a lot of people consider climbing more of a lifestyle or or more of like an adventure. Um, But you know, I come from a gym climbing background. I grew up going to a climbing gym. So I've always thought of climbing at least in some part as a sport. And so I'm I'm excited about the Olympics. I mean, I'm psyched to go, I'm yeah. psyched to see it. It's a. I,
1: I saw just, a rendering of the venue. It looked
0: oh, yeah? incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I haven't it's seen this it.
1: huge like amphitheater with the walls and like, you know, the seating. Oh, cool. I, I don't know what it's gonna be like now that um, they're restricting kind of attendance, right? Like if you're a foreigner, you can't, Go or but how, I think there'd
0: wh- be enough domestic attendance that it'll still right. be crazy. St- yeah, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. climbing in Japan is a big deal. Is it? Yeah, it's really popular and, and Japanese competitors have sort of dominated the world cup scene for the last few years, mm. which I think is maybe part of the reason that, that climbing is in the Olympics in Tokyo this year, is, right. uh, because I think the host country has some influence on that.
1: Uh-huh.
0: But uh, yeah, Japanese competitors will likely do very well and will likely have enthusiastic support from the home crowd. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, what's what's interesting about it now being a sport, Well, there's the controversy of it being a sport to begin with and then there's controversy around how they're constructing the competition, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have these three events essentially like speed, boulder, lead, and it's kind of the, your your cumulative score across those three disciplines that determines your ranking.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it and so it's a slightly Confused system in some ways. I mean, I, I think it's, it's skewed towards doing it fast, though, right? Which is kind no, of a not, weird thing, no. isn't it? Um, sort of, it's I was like, should we just dive into it? It's yeah, like it slightly the, yeah, complicated. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, so, this
1: is like inside baseball, but this is yeah. interesting. And especially since the Olympics are gonna be happening and we're all gonna be watching yeah. this. And,
0: and actually, so yeah, I'll dive into like the, the nitty gritty of climbing scoring. But I think what's interesting about it is that you can kind of apply this to all sports because like the decathlete or you know the biathlon or whatever, mm-hmm. like to some extent, any sport you see in the Olympics is being arbitrarily scored in a way that, that the competitors or at least the organizing committees have agreed upon. And so, you know any sport that you're watching is slightly arbitrary. You know, yeah. I mean, other than just the purely elemental like swimming, you know, mm-hmm. or, or running, like strictly for speed. Other than that, you're always getting into formatting issues and like, you know, it's just it's just interesting. And so with with climbing, uh, like you said, it's the combination of the three disciplines. It's a combined format, but um, it's actually you multiply the scores in them, mm-hmm. and so it sort of disproportionately weights excellence in specific categories in a weird way. Right. You know what I mean? And so in theory, if someone's average if someone's pretty good at all three disciplines, like they get fourth in all three, uh-huh. you'd think that's great. But they'd actually they would do worse than someone who was a great speed climber but but not as good at the other two disciplines. Mm. So it's this kind of weird formatting style that favors, you know, dominance in one category. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of climbers have complained about speed climbing being included. Because mm-hmm most people focus on the other two aspects. Most people focus on bouldering and lead climbing mm-hmm. uh, and sort of exclude speed climbing. Right. And so by combining them all into this combined format, it suddenly forced these otherwise elite competitors to sort of learn this new sport right. that they didn't really want. Right,
1: like like trying to tell a middle distance runner that suddenly they have to be a hundred meter sprinter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's not a, yeah. It's like telling a middle distance runner, that all of a sudden they're going to have to do a hundred meter sprint and that's going to count into their score, right. you know. And they're like physiologically, it's different things, you know. Yeah. And more than the physiological difference, there's also a, a skill difference with the climbing, speed climbing, because the the speed wall for climbing is like a specific track, basically. It's a uh-huh. specific sequence of movements, so you do have to learn that track, mm. like learn how to jump between the holds well and.
1: But it's made for TV because you you have two people right next to each other scurrying up the wall as fast as possible. Yeah, Yeah. me me personally, like five seconds or something.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, Yeah, five seconds up a fifteen meter wall looks completely insane. Uh Um, Yeah. So for me as a spectator, I think it's awesome. Right. Like it's easy to understand. It's incredibly. It's an incredible display of athleticism. Like when you see people speed climbing at an elite level, you're like, that guy is a good athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, just hands down. And you know I can understand why the climbing competitors aren't into it but I'm like I don't know from an outside perspective mm-hmm. it looks amazing it's great for TV it's easy to understand and I kind of like the well-rounded you know the fact that it forces the competitors to be well-rounded right you know right um, it's like rather holistic, than just
1: making like swimming or track and field, where these would each be individual events. Well, so th-
0: so that's part of the thing is that because climbing is an exhibition sport in 2020, they're only a, it, the sport is only allowed one medal, uh-huh. and so that's why they did a right. combined format because that way, had they just excluded speed climbing altogether, that's not fair to the speed athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, with only one medal, like how are you going to do it? So they just yeah. combine it into one. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So the other one is how far you can climb, like how, the the height that you can climb in a six minute interval or something like that?
0: No, it's so um, lead climbing and bouldering both basic. So lead climbing is climbing a taller wall with a rope, bouldering is climbing a short wall without a rope. Uh-huh. Um, and both of those are basically just measures of pure difficulty. So the bouldering, the boulder routes that you have to climb are incredibly difficult. And so they, they're like a test of max physical power. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Powerlifting, but with an incredible amount of, uh, you know, gymnastic skill and and mm-hmm. technique built into it. And then the lead climbing wall is the same thing, but on a higher, uh, you know, because you're climbing higher, uh, it's a more of an endurance test, right? Basically.
1: So, are any of them scored like diving though, with like, you know, numbers, <laughs> or is it all on a on a watch? No, they are no, they are scored with numbers, but they're
0: scored by numbers because you basically count how many holds up the route you make it. Okay. So if the lead route uh, is you know 50 holds long, like 50 hand movements up, your score is basically uh, you know which hand movement you Uh made it to before you fall off. Right. But but in general, if you see somebody successfully climb from the bottom to the top. They're basically going to win. Uh-huh. Like if someone makes it to the top, you're like, that guy's he's, the champion. He's the dude. Yeah. Who
1: are the Who are the standouts? Like, are there any runaway like favorites here? Um. Yeah. Yeah. There are a Careful. few. Yeah. yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Exactly. I'm like, yeah. well. Um. Yeah. No. Okay. So there's. Uh, I mean, this is a real test of my future I Olympic mm-hmm. commentating. So I like, got. Oh, yeah. Geez. Here you go. But um. Let's just say that right by, now, by August, I will be much better versed in yeah, this. Okay. But, um, but so the three for men, the three that come to mind right now um, that are obvious standouts are a Japanese man named Tomo Narasaki who uh-huh. dominated world cup scene, has incredible boulder, but also happens to be a very good speed climber. So he kind of has this, this leg up in the combined format mm-hmm. where he can really win in any of the three disciplines, which makes him incredibly competitive. Um, and then there's Adam Andra, who's a uh, Czech climber. He's the Czech guy. Yeah, right? Czech Republic, yeah, yeah, who is him. arguably the best climber in the world. He's he's pushed the standards of difficulty twice now, like breaking uh, into new mm-hmm. you know, categories of difficulty for climbing. Uh, and he's also repeated all the hardest walls in the world. And he's an incredible climber um, and he, basically won all the world cups that he entered last year. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. he's, uh, or the year before last since they kind of canceled the COVID season, but um, incredible climber, not a great speed climber, sort of a self described poor speed climber, which is ironic because he actually climbs very, very fast, but he's just not good at the, sport of speed climbing, mm. you know what I mean? Which is that's where all this stuff gets so weird because any casual climber looking at him under a climb would be like, wow, he's
1: so fast.
0: Mm. But then when it comes to speed climbing he just doesn't quite sprint fast enough. Right, you right. Know, it's like, it's so weird.
1: I would think but. that over time though, once this becomes, you know, institutionalized as an Olympic sport going forward, that young people who get enthusiastic about this are gonna be doing almost all of their training and learning in an indoor climbing wall, right? Like what is the relationship Uh, uh, between outdoor climbing and kind of, you know, how you, I mean, I know you do a lot of indoor climbing, but essentially you're an outdoor climber.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 essentially an adventurer, you know. Like yeah. by, by the standards of Olympic competition, I'm not even a climber. Like I'm not even <laughs> right. climbing at the difficulty that, that mm. these competitors warm up on,
1: basically. But, but your um, relationship to climbing is one of adventure and outdoors more than it is about an indoor climbing. Yeah,
0: th- th- though I bridge it a little bit because I came from the indoor world. Mm-hmm. I still love climbing indoors. I still train in, uh, you know, a similar way to competitors, but uh-huh. just a, at a much lower level. But at least I'm still trying to do the same things, but um yeah it it is interesting I mean, and that's a big part of what we we get into in the podcast talking about in climbing gold is is this contrast between adventure and athleticism and and you know like where is the sport going because, like you said, people that get into it now get into it in the gym and train indoors mm-hmm. and I mean it's just interesting that an Olympic climber could potentially never climb outdoors <laughs> you know like right, and right. and then even more interesting when you think that the history of rock climbing sort of Branches off from from classical mountaineering and like people summiting peaks in the Alps and things like that, and when you think that an Olympic rock climber nowadays could have never even hiked up a mountain outside, yeah. you know, never never even gone hiking, Just you're like
1: divorced from that entire tradition.
0: Yeah. yeah which i'm not saying that's good or bad but it's just interesting to see how the, the sport has mm-hmm. has sort of splintered over time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's cool that it's in there though and i guess there's you know there's when you look at tokyo there's there's karate skateboarding surfing yeah. right like yeah, totally. the olympics have changed quite a bit.
0: As, as they should it's i mean cool. the olympics should reflect the times i think. Yeah. You know and you know in the, like the what 40s or 50s uh, the olympics included mountaineering they gave uh, medals for that. mountaineering back in the day. Wow. You know, when you think of uh old school like the first ascent of the Eiger and things like uh-huh. that like classic mountains in, in Europe. Um like those received Olympic
1: medals some. Wow, oh, I didn't know and, that. Uh, That's cool. you know, in that
0: one way and that,
1: that feels that feels like a story you should tell in the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't gotten into it but mm. um
0: but we probably will.
1: Cool. When does the podcast launch? Um, I like think the, the podcast,
0: yeah, I think at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so I think the 26th of March is the first episode. Uh-huh. But honestly, I'm uninvolved with it, with the whole launch. <laughs> oh, and, come on, you know, you're the host, though. No, but I'm um, I'm the unskilled host. Everybody's
1: got a podcast. Come on, just I know just does. Embrace
0: it, <laughs> you know. It's It's been fun though because you know, so many of our guests, so many of the people I get to talk to are personal heroes of mine from mm. childhood. You know, people whose films I watch or books I read yeah. or, you know, whose posters I had in my room, things like that. And so it's fun to be able to talk to them about how they got into climbing and what it means to them and just hear some of their opinions about where the sports going. Right. Because so many of them are like, that's my hero. You know, yeah. I that's cool.
1: What do you think this whole thing is that I've yeah, created I've here? It, you know, totally. It's like the ultimate excuse to like call up cool people yeah. and, and talk to them. Yeah, and yeah, then you, you get to share people. that, like imagine, Yourself, you know, young Alex at age twelve. If a resource like that had been available to you, Mm -hmm. like be the Mm -hmm. person that you needed when you were that young person, like searching for the thing for you. No,
0: that I mean that is cool, and and it's interesting because I think a big part of what made me, you know, somewhat successful as a climber in my life was the fact that I had access to a climbing gym earlier than most, and the gym, the climbing gym that I was going to. Had you know, it had a little gear shop built in. And mm-hmm. It had this little video display constantly going with certain climbing films, so you'd always see like certain right. climbing films going. You know, old school VHS. You're like, this is awesome, yeah. super inspiring. And you know, I'd be climbing, and then I'd like read all the climbing magazines and watch the films. And uh, you know, to have that opportunity as a young person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is is a big part of what allowed me to to become a decent climber. Yeah, and like and nowadays people have that you know exponentially more of that yeah. like more access to information yeah. you know more climbing footage available to them yeah it's cool and and they have way better facilities like
1: way better gyms well the gyms seem to be ubiquitous these days yeah
0: and, and not just more common but just better you know yeah. better lit more open cleaner like nicer better holds better setting mm-hmm. um, like higher quality training facilities you know better pads like better flooring mm-hmm. which is uh, a big deal. you know i broke my arm in the gym when i was a kid not so much because the flooring was bad But that kind of thing does factor in, you know, like if you can safely climb in a, like basically modern gyms are just safe. And so Mm -hmm. you can climb, you can push yourself super hard physically with no risk of injury.
1: Mm -hmm. When you were doing the free solo tour, I mean, it would be, you would share like in every city that you would go to for the, the tour, it was all about like, where's the climbing gym yeah. and like the workout that day Dude. before the screening or whatever. I've,
0: I've sampled like almost <laughs> every gym have in been the country. Every climbing gym in America. Yeah, it feels like it. But actually, there's so um, many gyms in America now that I just, mm. I've probably sampled a tiny percentage right. actually. But it is true that every major city in the country, I've, I've sampled the gym. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I typically would land, I would go from the airport straight to the gym, uh-huh. I would train. I take a shower at the gym. I would go straight to the venue, do whatever event I was supposed to do, uh-huh. and then basically either go to a hotel or go back to the airport. Right. But it's like gyms have always felt like a second home to me, almost. Mm-hmm. You know, I walk into a climbing gym anywhere, and I'm like, ah, home sweet mm-hmm. home. You know, I take yeah. my shoes off, I wander around, I dump my stuff everywhere.
1: But it has like, to be complicated with you now because if you just want to go and get a workout in, you're going to have to be a bit of a politician for a yeah. while first, right?
0: <laughs> depends, depends. You, you know, you wear your hood, <laughs> yeah, you have your, uh, yeah. you keep your head down uh-huh. you just like climb. right? Yeah, to, to some extent, it's always a little bit of a scene, mm. but, but on the other hand, any gym in the country, I mean, everyone's there to do the same thing as you. Mm. Like it is nice because you're all just there to climb together. Right. So when you get past the initial like, oh, what are you doing here? That's crazy, can mm. I take a picture? Ultimately you're like, let's, let's just climb. session all these boulders together. Yeah, because yeah, it's like, we're all yeah. just there to do the same thing.
1: Well, it's been a crazy couple of years for you. The first time that you did the show, we talked about the free solo climb, but yeah, it was it, before the movie came out. I know, I Do remember. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. So, I just remember thinking that I had a grip on what it is exactly that you had done and feeling confident that I understood it. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you invited me to the premiere. I remember uh, in Beverly Hills, that screening and I watched the movie and I was like, Oh, I didn't understand it at all. Like I, I'm sure I still don't, but the movie, you know, took it quite a bit further in terms of you know getting me to fully grok what had actually happened. And then, of course, you know, your story's well told um, with everything that happened with the movie, and you went on this crazy press tour and did eight bazillion interviews, and I'm sure completely talked out on this movie. Um, so I want to talk about other stuff today, mm-hmm. but before we kind of move off of, of free solo, I mean, in the in the wake of being so exhaustively interviewed about that, do you feel like there's anything left to say, or anything left unsaid, or anything, you know, looking back on it that you feel like people misunderstood about the movie or you, or is it just your let's time for the next chapter? No, I think I think it's all pretty it's, well. It's been said.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think part of why the film did so well is that it is an incredibly honest look mm-hmm. at at the process, you know, leading up to free selling all Cap. Um so I, I don't know. I've got nothing but positive. Yeah. You know, it's like the the media tour around it was crazy and like going to the Oscars is crazy mm-hmm. and, you know, meeting uh Prince William or whatever, right. you know, because we want a BAFTA. So like yeah, you're in yeah. the UK like meeting royalty or whatever. Like it's all totally crazy whirlwind tour. But um but I can still look back on it and and be be happy about the whole thing. You know, because uh-huh. I am you know, understandably proud of free selling all cap. Like it was something very difficult that I worked hard for that that I'm proud of. And I think the film reflected that really well, you know, and very honestly. And so I'm like, yeah, proud of the film, proud of the whole deal. It's like, it's cool.
1: It was a phenomenon though. I mean, everybody was talking about this movie for a documentary to break out like that was just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I was like so in it that I can't really right. say, you know, like yeah. I was just surviving the tour. <laughs> it was like right. such a whirlwind. But, um, but no, now looking back on it with a little bit of perspective a few years away, uh, you know, I'm like, what a life experience, like what a crazy right. whirlwind. Crazy I'm man. Like, I, I mean, before the movie was made, I, I joked that all I wanted was to see El Cap on IMAX, uh-huh. You know, just because El Cap to me is the most meaningful wall in the world. It's like the most beautiful iconic face. And to see it on the biggest possible screen, I was like, "That's that's cool." Right. And uh, and you know, sure enough, we saw it, show on IMAX, and I got uh-huh. to see the movie on IMAX a couple of times, and I was like, "This <laughs> is so awesome." It. You know, it's just it's cool. I was yeah. like, "Oh, we we did the wall
1: justice. We did you know Yosemite mm-hmm. justice." I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm pretty proud of yeah. that." Yeah. And you did the world of climbing justice. I mean, you it was it was so effective in introducing the magnitude of what you do to the world and what's so you know, kind of cherished about the community.
0: Or, or maybe too effective because then everyone now that doesn't know anything about climbing. Right. They're like, "Is you know, so do you use a rope? And you're like, yeah, mostly you use a rope. Nah. It's just this one crazy movie like <laughs> happened to, because I know a lot of my serious climbing friends, you know, their families watch the movie and then they're like, is that what you're doing? And they're like, no, mm-hmm. no, that's not what I'm doing. Right. But, and, and that's not even what I'm mostly doing, you know because yeah. I'm typically climbing with partners and, uh you know, and training and just like climbing normally. Uh-huh. But um, but obviously the documentary is focused entirely on this, uh, yeah. you know, this one sort of quixotic goal. Yeah. But, but you know, even that, I mean, they, they filmed for two years, uh, you know, the preparation training and, mm-hmm. and like getting ready for that climb. And in, and I did maybe a half dozen sort of cutting edge free solos to build up to that, but still that's like seven days of soloing in the two mm-hmm. years that we were filming, you know, so you watch the film and you're like, he's a crazy soloist, and you're like, yeah, you know, for right. seven days out of right. two years, like, you know, you gotta keep it, and keep it in perspective. Right,
1: so you go from being, you know, this living a certain kind of lifestyle to be the climber that you are. And then you have this whirlwind crazy, like Hollywood year where you're just like on planes and, you know, yeah. going, I mean, your life is upside down. So I, I would suspect that um, the pandemic for better or worse has kind of suited you to like Dude. kind of get back to just doing what you do and like yeah. being left alone so you can just climb and live your life. Yeah, that's it has. <laughs> uh
0: Yeah, I mean, so I live in Las Vegas and yeah. and through the whole pandemic, uh even during like lockdowns and shutdowns and everything, outdoor recreation was always explicitly allowed in mm-hmm. the, the state of Nevada. So uh, combined with the fact there's almost limitless rock around town, it was always totally okay for us to go out and develop some new climbing areas and go climbing and do do things near the house, and so it was an incredible place to live. Um, yeah, I mean the whole pandemic for me has just been sort of returning to roots. You know, right. where I have no obligations, I go climb every day, I explore new crags, you know, develop new climbs. I'm just like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. And I know that's an incredibly fortunate position to be in. Though it's also, I mean, you know, I do live there for a reason. It's like, you know, I moved there because it's the best right. rock and because of that degree of access. And you're married now. Oh, yeah, I'm married now. Yeah, yeah that, that also happened during yeah. pandemic. <laughs> it's like, that's the thing is, I mean, personally, it's uh-huh. been kind of a good year, you know? <laughs> but, right. um, yeah, but it's like embarrassing to say so because uh-huh. obviously there's been so much hardship for so many other people. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes things just work out in life mm-hmm. and you're like,
1: Noth- nothing wrong so with how So, how are you or... settling in? How's Sonny doing? Yeah, no,
0: Sonny's What's going good. on? Sonny's actually great. Sonny yeah. is uh, in a weird, like I don't know if podcast listeners care about this kind of thing, but she's like climbing really hard right now, which uh-huh. is like started this whole interesting positive feedback thing where because she's really strong, she's like more excited about it because it's like more fun for her mm-hmm. and which makes her more excited to train harder, which is making her stronger. <laughs> she's like mm-hmm. in this total positive phase of life right now where she's like really cranking. She's like climbing her hardest grades. She's all fired up like- That's cool. It's, um, yeah, we just trained in the gym last night and she was like, Performing to a degree that I was like, huh. It's wow. like damn. You know, because I've been gone on an expedition for a month uh-huh. and she's been basically just like cranking for the month I was gone. Right. And I came home and I'm like, whoa. Like, she was she even a climber when you guys first met? She had barely started climbing when we first yeah. met. She um, her sister was into it and her cousin to some extent, basically like mm-hmm. her family got her into it a tiny bit. And then when we started dating, uh, obviously she started climbing more. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But That's good. Yeah, and now you, she's like pretty good. She's, <laughs> she's super like, into it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just like anything, you get good at it and you get strong and then you're more yeah, then emotionally more connected to yeah. it. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, you're more
0: excited. Yeah. And I think for her um you know, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I think as she started climbing, there was a little more fear involved. You know, it's like cause climbing is kind of serious and kind of hardcore and, and I think that because she was dating me, she kind of like went into the deep end right away mm-hmm. and was maybe exposed to like a little too much of the like hardcore side of climbing Mm -hmm. straight away. And I think now as she gets like stronger and more able and can like do more as a climber, it's Mm -hmm. all like much less scary. right? And so it's like obviously more fun when you're not scared at all. It's like, Uh, she's doing it in reverse. Like let's start start, start with free soloing El Cap and we'll work
1: our way backwards to the climbing gym. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it (laughs) it kind of
0: is. Certainly psychologically, Uh I think that's right. um, That's funny. And there's some degree of luck involved with it all too, because like, because she's been connected with me for years and I know like basically everybody in the climbing community Mm -hmm. um, over the last few years, there were sort of like a series of unfortunate accidents where like people prominent climbers died in various ways. And so, you know, all of those sorts of accidents like affected her personally in a way that had she just started climbing in the gym and and not known me, she wouldn't know any of the people and it wouldn't have Mm -hmm. like touched her quite as much. I don't know, that's the kind of thing that you're like, Oh, well, you know. Sorry to. This is the world that it. you're in, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but there is a degree of luck to that because the for several years it seemed like really bad, where like it, there were just a bunch of high profile accidents that were kind of terrible. But then you can go five years and have nobody that you know die. Mm. You know, it's. I
1: don't know. Yeah, but it's the, it's one of the few sports where that like what you just said would even come up.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know if you're road biking all the time. People yeah, that's true. That's, that's you know, true. There was just a terrible road biking thing yeah. in Vegas that like totally shook the cycling Oh, wow, key. I didn't know that. It was like a, a truck uh, basically like drove over like seven cyclists on a group ride mm. and killed six of them or something. Mm. It was like crazy. Oh man, I hate the, hearing that. That's the, I know that's the yeah. thing is I'm
1: always like, oh. And you're because, out on your bike, like I've noticed that you've done like during the pandemic, you kind of have created, yeah, we're gonna talk yeah. about Guyana, <laughs> but you've kind of created these endurance challenges for yeah, yourself, yeah. like I'm gonna ride my bike hundred miles and then climb this mountain and yeah. ride home in the dark.
0: Yeah, that's yeah that yeah. sums it up. <laughs> well, it's you know because if you live in one place and you don't have access to big mountains, you can at least mm. make the mountains that you do have challenging in an appropriate like, way.
1: But by... like, yeah, I'm going to show up exhausted.
0: Yeah. and see how how I do when. Well, it's it's uh, I really love challenges that you can do from home when you mm-hmm. just bike out of your driveway and then have this crazy epic day in the mountains and then bike back to your home. Mm-hmm. And you know to be able to do that in the suburbs in Las Vegas is pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, you're like biking along surface streets, just like, and especially in Vegas, I, I actually ride on the sidewalk a lot, which is kind of embarrassing, but it's the best way to not get hit by a car. Uh-huh. I feel like a little kid or something, you know, <laughs> who's like afraid to bike in the shoulder, but uh, but there are big sections of Vegas where it's definitely safer to ride the sidewalk. Mm. And uh, you know, you're like, this is totally absurd. But then, you know, three hours later, you're grinding up this crazy hill, like a mountainside. Uh-huh. And then, you know, a couple hours after that, you're like hiking through the woods by yourself. Yeah. And you're just like, it's pretty amazing to have that kind of access.
1: To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most mental health, sex politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to the conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So let's talk about um, Guyana. You were like off the grid for like a month yeah, it's like yeah. this Nat Geo project. Can you talk about that or? I think so. I mean, yeah. who's gonna stop me? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. No, no, I think it's all totally fine. There's unfair. no
1: network boss that's gonna yeah, exactly. call here and tell you to shut up. Yeah, so no, I think it's go all fine. It. It.
0: Um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was being filmed for an episode of National Geographic Explorer, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a series. Um, it was being filmed by some friends of mine and and it was a crazy trip. Yeah, so we flew into Guyana, into Georgetown and then the goal was to climb this Tapui, which is like a big sandstone, well, a sort of quartzitic sandstone wall that sticks out of the jungle. And there are a bunch of tepuis that are kind of scattered across Venezuela and Guyana mm-hmm. and Brazil. Actually, have you seen uh, the movie Up? The, yeah. the yeah, really yeah, yeah. like charming Disney movie, yeah. Pixar movie, whatever, mm-hmm. um, with like floating balloon house, like over right. there. Um, those are Tapui's, so oh that's like God. what we were trying to wow. climb. Um, Or if you've seen the new Point Break, that was also filming. Or like in, don't
1: they, there's something like that in Avatar too. Like these these,
0: like- like, No, the ones in Avatar are modeled on this area in China. That's mm -hmm. like limestone. It's like a different, it's caused uh, in a different way. Uh Like it's a different geological process that creates the Avatar mountains. But um, but yeah, it is kind of a similarly surreal mountain landscape Mm -hmm. um, with dense jungle (laughs) around it. But anyway, so we were going to climb this wall that hadn't been climbed. And then we also had this, uh, sort of renowned biologist with us, this guy Bruce Means, who um, had done extensive work uh, researching the the frog species in the area. So he was going to sort of finish this transect of of the the river basin that this wall uh, formed the top of, mm-hmm. and he was basically uh, researching different species of frog along the way. And so. It was kind of a combined trip where we were going to get him up the wall so that he could find some of the frogs on the summit and possibly on the cliff itself.
1: So it's like adventure meets science. Yeah, adventure experiment. meets science. Yeah. yeah, which is
0: sort of the perfect nat geo thing, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like adventurous, but there's a strong educational, right. scientific component to it.
1: And why yeah. had that? Why had those peaks not been climbed before? So
0: that particular peak um, hadn't been climbed, I think, largely because it's next to this mountain called Roraima, which is uh, I forget what the name means, but it's like source of waters or something. Roraima is, uh, the it marks the boundary between Venezuela, Guyana and Brazil. Mm-hmm. So like this one point in the middle of this big mountain, it's the highest mountain in the region. And then from that summit, the water that comes off the various sides, like one aspect drains into the Amazon river, one drains into the Orinoco and Venezuela, I think, and the other into Guyana. Mm-hmm. But um, so basically, it's like, you know, imagine a big mountain that splits three countries and splits the headwaters of three distinct basins. So it's like this really famous, sort of important peak. And we were climbing the little peak next to it. So you can kind of see why the little peak next to it hadn't really had Doesn't much action over love. the years. Yeah. yeah. Cause like people love Roraima and mm. Roraima has this huge history to it. And like people were doing expeditions there in the 1800s. Like people are all about Roraima. Nobody cares about Waiasapu, which mm. is the little peak next to it that we were mm. doing.
1: And yeah. one of the things, I mean, based on what you were sharing on social media was just like how wet it was and mm-hmm. just the, the condensation and the... Yeah, I mean, technically we were there in the dry season,
0: but it rained something like eight hours a day. It was like uh, totally insane. Wow. Every day we would joke. We're like, what the heck kind of
1: dry season is this? It's like so crazy, yeah. but... Technically was it a difficult climb Not, or just hadn't been done?
0: It hadn't been done. I mean, we didn't know obviously because it's never yeah. been done. So. Uh, we climbed this sort of large overhanging wall. Uh, you kind of have to only climb the overhangs there because otherwise they're covered in vegetation and, and water, uh, which is cool. It makes the style of the climbing really fun. The rock is incredible. It's some of the best rock on earth. It's like mm-hmm. this amazing quartzite, really hard, really solid. And then what we did uh, for climbers is a six pitch 12B. So it's like, you know, hard enough that it's uh, like, it's not easy by any means, but it's not like cutting edge elite climbing either. Yeah. You know? But for an expedition like that, it's pretty, you know, it's solid. You're like, right. well, we did something that we're proud of.
1: Well, you were there a month. Did he find his frogs? Did yeah, you get he the did. frogs sorted out?
0: Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah. So Bruce, <laughs> uh, I don't, so actually he probably doesn't want too much said about it because I think okay. he's gonna publish it all in scientific journals and uh-huh. things. But basically he left the jungle with many, many specimens. Like he had, glass jars full of specimens. Mm. Um, and then he'll take them back to his university and, and do uh, DNA sequencing on all of them to see whether or not they're a new species, whether or not uh, they're related to, to existing things, just basically to break it all down. But um, he was personally focused on the frogs, but he also took many other creepy crawlies of interest because mm. uh, basically anything, the, th- the thing with where we were is that no one's ever been there before. So there's been like no science done because there's the rainforest approach to get into the mountains, but then between the rainforest and the actual mountain, which is say three or 4,000 feet higher, there's a big steep long hillside, which is sort of the cloud forest, Uh um, which is like, if you imagine like stunted kind of gnarly trees growing over the talus field, like the rocks that would have been below the cliff. Um, It's like a whole different ecosystem. And so no one had ever been through the cloud forest at all Mm. in this area. Mm. So potentially anything that he found there uh, alive, you know, could be new to science, right? So, you know, I think he he cast a pretty wide net in terms of collecting uh-huh. specimens because like anything could be new and it could all contribute to to a scientists understanding of, of that biome. Wow, you know?
1: so great. did you have to like bushwhack in and it's, were you camping dude. out in there the whole time? Like how yeah. difficult was it to actually just even get in there? Dude,
0: bushwhacking yeah. does not begin to describe <laughs> the whole, like, um, yeah, the cloud forest, we, uh, we called it the slime forest because, uh-huh. um, it's like, it's, it's, it was really interesting. I read a couple books about sort of natural history of Guyana while we were there. Cause um, you know, it's the tropics. So it's dark from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. every day. Mm-hmm. And we were staying in hammocks the whole time. There's nothing like, there's no flat ground. Basically the whole trip, there's no flat ground. Mm. So you're always just rigging your hammock between trees. And so I was in my hammock for like 12 hours a day, basically reading books and like, you know, learning and stuff, it was kind of fun. Yeah. But um, it was, it's, it's just wild. I mean, the cloud forest, there's no, there's no soil. It's like it rains so much that it washes away soil. And this is particularly true on the summits of the tepuis. like on top of the wall that we were climbing. Um, it rains so much that any kind of earth gets washed away. Mm-hmm. So you wind up with plants just stuck to the rock itself. And then that means because there's no soil, it means that the plants all have to get their nutrients in other ways. So uh, the summits of tepuis have some of the highest rates of uh, carnivory in plants, like the, mm-hmm. you know the plants all eat insects and mm-hmm. things. Or they're like big uh, like teacup type things where like things will fall into the the water collect in the bottom and drown and then rot, and then the plant will like absorb the right. the you know the, uh, the material basically. It's, it's just like this crazy so landscape. like
1: crazy plant kingdom out of Dude, like, right? I'll show you, you some know, pictures uh, yeah, totally like, insane Wow totally that's insane wild.
0: yeah and and also the highest rates of endemism on earth like endemic species like species that are unique to that specific place because these are so isolated from the jungle below, like because they're like a 2000 foot wall, let's say sticking up out of the jungle, mm-hmm. the summits are a totally different climate basically than the area down below mm. because it's higher, it gets higher uh, UV exposure, more rain, harsher conditions. And then the summits have been separated from the jungle below for like 40 million years or something because of the erosion and, and the way it winds up being an island. So it means that all the species have been diverging for 40 million years. Right. I don't know. So, like, it's, like
1: a, it's sort of like a, a, a last <laughs> vestige Galapagos type situation where it's, a, it's like a Petri dish for study. No, exactly. It's yeah, exactly
0: yeah. like the Galapagos. Yeah. I was about to say, welcome right. to the ritual science podcast. Right. <laughs> I was like super, I got super I into we it on the talk trip. I thought to talk about
1: mindset. Yeah, my, exactly,
0: exactly. No, I'm like, cool. let's talk about biomes. <laughs> yeah. No, it was,
1: um, it was a crazy trip. Uh huh. I mean, a month is a lot. Like, if you, I mean, you did that one climb, but like, what were you doing for the rest of the (laughs) month? Dude, I read a lot of bugs. (laughs) And
0: like, (laughs) It's so grim being in the oh. hammock. Uh, for I mean, you know, it's one of the things you're like, oh, you're in a hammock, but like my hammock had a puddle in the bottom for like the, the whole time we were at the wall, basically, mm-hmm. because because we're in the cloud You're just waiting. you just
1: you're waiting for an opening.
0: No, uh, we were just toiling away. You know, it uh-huh. takes a long time to get to the wall. To, and because we were filming, you know, because it's a TV project, everything's a little bit slower because right. obviously you have to wait for cameras and. Um, there's just more equipment to move around, uh-huh. and it's an incredibly difficult environment to move equipment around mm-hmm. in because you're mm-hmm. like literally crawling through roots and vines and things. You know, that's why we call it a slime forest because you're basically like climbing up this lattice of roots and like shriveled little tree trunks. Right. But like I was saying, because it's kind of a difficult environment, it's not like the plants are like rooted in soil. Most of the plants are growing on other plants, so it's like there'll be a tree trunk, but the tree trunk is like covered in moss. And then there are little parasitic flowers growing out of the tree trunk as mm. well. And then, you know, it's like there's all kinds of like epiphytes. I like guess like plants growing yeah. on other plants. And so it's just like this crazy dense like wall of life, you know, and you're just like crawling through it. And it's like not an easy place to get around. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm walking on a flat trail. It's like so grim.
1: Are there predators or no,
0: there aren't yeah. that many living things actually, or aren't that many uh, animals mm-hmm. because the whole place is like pretty tough, actually, mm-hmm. you know we saw birds we saw um, apparently we saw sloth droppings at the wall, so there were sloths there, mm-hmm. I guess, um, but we didn't see that much, you know most things come out after dark, like the frogs come out after dark, um, you know we heard lots of things, I mean tons of spiders and snakes mm-hmm. and all kinds of things like that but um but nothing you know nothing like exciting when you think of the jungle and you're like, oh, monkeys all over it's like just not that kind of scene right. because. We were kind of in like alpine jungle, you know, like up high towards the base of the walls. It's all like a little bit more inhospitable than uh, mm-hmm. than like a tropical rainforest, mm-hmm.
1: well, as somebody who's so environmentally conscious and environmentally minded like to visit a place like that where it's just bursting with life in a way that you just don't see, you know that's almost impossible yeah, to see right? Like what a unique, cool experience when you come back from that, I mean, I know you just got back, but. That's gotta you know, kind of land as a meaningful experience in terms of like how you think about all the advocacy work that you're doing with the foundation. Like totally. this is what's at stake, right? Like they've they this this protected place is what is, you know,
0: at risk. Yeah, so so you mentioned uh the My foundation, the the Holland Foundation, actually this year we funded like the last year we funded this project called the uh, Car Solar, which does uh solar powered boats in the Amazon. I saw that uh, yeah. in Ecuador oh yeah you uh, saw that well, I
1: read your I read the annual report oh cool it's Dude, very professional
0: I, I love I love how uh <laughs> speaking of professional I was yeah. like man you sure do your your homework <laughs> no but so part of the reason I was excited about this trip to Guyana and like climbing this wall mm-hmm. was because you know we had just funded this project in in the Amazon and I was kind of like oh that's interesting and a big part of that, that project Car Solar was that by keeping transportation costs on, on rivers low, like basically by enabling boats to, to mm-hmm. navigate these rivers easily uh, without you know, with low fuel costs, basically solar powered boats with an electric motor, um, it prevents the, the need to cut roads through the jungle. Right. And, and it was interesting because you know, we did exactly that. We basically flew to the most remote airstrip and then took a whole day in a dugout canoe up this river, mm-hmm. which was totally insane. It felt like an amusement park ride because there's mm-hmm. so many big logs that fall over the river that you're constantly ducking and like, you know, avoiding vines and and each time you go, your boat barely makes it under some log, you know, all kinds of things like fall into your boat. And then they're like spiders all over the boat. And like, right. you know, there's just so much life and it's so crazy. But, um, you know, I was like, this is exactly the type of project that we were supporting through the Honda Foundation is like making sure that this type of transit is economical and, mm-hmm. and and functional so that you don't have to cut roads through places like this mm-hmm. because you know rivers really are the primary means of transit through that whole like you know basically all of the upper half of South America yeah. you know it's like there's just there's so much water i would never been somewhere where it rained so much there's just water everywhere. the dry season though dude it's crazy <laughs> crazy
1: well those boats are really cool like they're they're like these low slung super long canoes and they're just tiled with Solar panels, yeah, all solar on them. top, and yeah, you're no, calling it like what, a, like the ghost boat or something like yeah, that? Yeah, like,
0: yeah, I forget. Is there the,
1: silent? You know, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no, you yeah. know, like motor that you would, you know, or the smell of the gasoline totally. that you would typically hear. And, and more importantly, you
0: don't have to import the gasoline or the diesel mm-hmm. or whatever because in these super remote villages, to get gasoline in there to power your boat you know, first it has to fly in one or more small flights and then take other boats, you know, before you even get to the the villages at the very end of the rivers basically, uh-huh. you know, so it means that the cost of gas in those communities is incredibly high because it's really hard to get gasoline there. So when you can do something like a you know, solar powered boat, it's just mm-hmm. a lot more uh, economical option.
1: So how many boats now are outfitted with
0: solar? Now? Uh, I actually don't know. The car solar project, um, I think they'd built a couple, it was, not quite a demonstration project, but I think it was like you know they were creating this this new idea basically, mm-hmm. and I think you know moving forward they'll just keep building boats as as uh, you know demand dictates. Yeah,
1: but well, it's cool the work that that you're doing with the foundation. I mean, the last time we talked was at that event in in Denver that Rivian mm-hmm. thing where it was it was kind of an announcement about the project that you're doing in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. creating this community organized and yeah, operated micro, micro solar grid mm-hmm. using like batteries from the Rivian trucks yep. right as yep. as like solar There's cells storage. which is yeah. pretty cool so let's talk about that a little bit like what an amazing project! This town, you know, overridden by the hurricane, yep. has no power. I mean, how did you even yes. find like Arturo and like the people to like make that happen?
0: Yeah, it was it was a uh, that's one of the projects I'm most proud of through the Haunted Foundation because it's just such an interesting and potentially transformative project. Um, but so, just for context, it's in Adjuntas in Puerto Rico, which is kind of the mm-hmm. center of Puerto Rico, which is pretty hard hit by the by the hurricane, and. Be, Basically, because it's sort of in the center of the island, it was cut off. Uh, you know, transmission distribution lines for power were sort of severed for a long time. And so you wind up with the whole city, you know, off the grid for uh-huh. for like months after the hurricane. And so, sort of just as luck would have it, that that community uh, has this uh, community organization called uh, Casa Pueblo, which has already done sort of environmentally focused community organizing for many years, like opposing a, a big mine in the middle of the country and a couple other sort of like environmental advocacy type projects and they've always embraced solar like Casa Pueblo's always um, had solar on their own facility. Uh-huh. And so uh, after the hurricane they became sort of this energy oasis in the middle of you know an otherwise uh, blacked out town. And so I think that's a big part of why there's such community buy-in in Adjuntas, you know because they had months where there's basically mm-hmm. one structure in the whole city that has power and it's Casa Pueblo and it's because they embrace solar. And so um, so there's tremendous community buy-in, and combined with the fact that utility rates are really high, people are basically paying way too much for their power anyway. So they're really open to other uh, solutions. And so Casa Pueblo was looking to, to institute a microgrid in the whole city center. So basically, all the uh, main businesses downtown could go onto a uh, microgrid and, mm-hmm. and sort of separate from from the utility. And uh, the executive director of the Honolua Foundation reached out to him because she, she heard about his work. Dory. And, yeah, Dory Dory Trimble. Right, she, she's incredible, but um, so she reached out to Casa Pueblo and was like, oh, we'd love to help support this project. And then we wound up wrangling Rivian, which is a personal sponsor mm-hmm. of mine, the electric truck manufacturer. They offered to supply the, the batteries for storage for the project because half the microgrid is being able to store the energy that mm-hmm. you, um, and, and that's basically how it all came together. Right,
1: it's pretty cool. Like what, what was really cool was hearing RJ, the founder of Rivian talk about how they've created this battery technology such that when the car has run its course and people are done with it or whatever, Mm -hmm. they can pull the battery out and then they can repurpose it for this very thing, right? To like power these grids.
0: Yeah, that's exactly. And that's an important part of the Rivian design because some electric cars haven't really designed their batteries with the second life applications in mind. They just make the cheapest battery mm-hmm. they can, and then when it's done, it just kind of gets you know shredded. like mm-hmm. you know, so I think that when you go into the design process with the intention of using the batteries for something else useful after the, their life in the car, you know that's an important, and I mean, really, that should be a design principle for all products. You know, yeah. thinking about what happens to it when it no longer, especially when the mining,
1: for. you know, the minerals and every, I mean, it's so totally. intensive now, and totally. the environmental impact of that is so traumatic for totally. the planet.
0: But the thing that um, I think
1: my, the
0: thing that the, the biggest like personal thing from the, from the Atuntas project, I don't even know what you call it, but like the thing that struck me the most from the microgrid Adjuntas is that. Uh, when you're in Adjuntas and you're in the city center, it's like a classic sort of plaza, like what you think of, you know, small town America mm-hmm. or something with a city square. You know, it's like this bustling town center. There are tons of cars, tons of people. It's like, you know, it's the center of this whole community. And To power the whole thing, it's something like eight Rivian truck batteries. Mm -hmm. And so, if you think of it as eight trucks, are we going to power that whole downtown? When you're standing in the downtown and you look at how many cars are around you, there are like hundreds of cars, you know, like parked on both sides of the street, you know, bumper to bumper going around the square. It's like crazy. It's super dense, you know. And you're like, man, eight of those can power the whole thing. Right. It's like pretty striking, actually, because, you know, Rivian. like I think Amazon has already pre-ordered 100,000 uh, electric delivery mm-hmm. vans from Rivian, maybe even more now. Yeah, I was I there yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: that was a big deal, right? Like that's, that's like a huge part of Rivian's business is yeah. gonna be powering the Amazon fleet.
0: Totally, but so 100,000 electric delivery vans. And you think that, you know, all of those will be, you know, sort of phasing out in 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it only takes eight of them to power this whole city center in a way that's like transformative for the community. You're like, when you multiply that out, you're like, man, that's a lot of yeah. communities that could be positively impacted in yeah, yeah, yeah. that way. And so so, so, so that's kind of the exciting opportunity mm-hmm. for the Harnal Foundation, I think, is to help establish sort of a pipeline for second life batteries mm-hmm. and potentially, you know, implement more microgrids like this around, uh, say, the Caribbean or something,
1: right? I mean, I suppose we should say, you know, you created this foundation what, like three years ago or
0: something No, no, like I made it uh, like in 2012 oh, or you did? something, it's but it's just been, it's been a slow- It's kind of hit
1: this stride yeah, there in the last well, couple of years. And a big
0: part of that is hiring the executive director, Dory, right. who's actually very smart and is, uh-huh. because for many years, it was just a way of me personally donating money. Mm-hmm. And so I would just, uh, you know, donate some money. It'd be split into let's say two grants to two different organizations and like, that's it. And then in the last three or four years, sort of since Free Solo and the whole crazy movie tour, mm-hmm. it's really become right. like much more of its own organization. Yeah,
1: it started as your own personal effective altruism. Yeah, experiment. No, I mean, exactly. And then it's become institutionalized. I think you guys, you donate like 1.3 million, you, you had like 1.3 no, uh, million in million revenue. You, yeah, yeah, you donate, exactly. but you donated like 87%, like a really high percentage yeah, of what came like in, like went directly to projects yeah. and you've picked, Solar as the primary focus, at least for now. Yep. Um, so I have lots of things I want to say about that, but maybe explain as somebody who's very, you know, environmentally literate and has spent a lot of time studying um, environmentalism, thinking about it. Um, why have you like why is solar the primary focus right now?
0: Uh, so when, when I started the foundation you know, like you said, it was just my way of sort of trying to affect, you know, effective altruism. Mm-hmm. So I was basically just looking for any kind of, uh, well, I guess, you know, starting in the beginning, I think that the most important issue facing humanity is, is climate change or sort of environmental degradation more broadly, let's say. And at the same time, I think there's no point in trying to solve environmental problems that don't also improve quality of life that like help the human populations that in, in, in the area. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've been on enough expeditions to various parts of the world where you see communities that, you know, like they'll cut down the last tree, um, you know, on earth if it means boiling water for their mm-hmm. family to like keep their kids safe and things like that.
1: And the solution so, can't be premised on us all being martyrs. No,
0: exactly. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. and anywhere you go in the world, and it's funny because, you know, we're talking about Guyana, like we were just hanging with these, all the Amerindian folks, like deep in the interior, like basically, you know, Native Americans for, for South America. And, uh, you know, a bunch of the villages, they're living super traditional lifestyles. It's like, you know, basically just still practicing slash and burn agriculture, cultivating cassava. It's all, you know, as it has been for for thousands of years, to Mm -hmm. some extent, and they're all like, we want direct TV, you know, and you're like, you don't even have power. Like there's no grid, (laughs) there's no, there's no cell service, there's Uh no connectivity, there's no transportation, you know, they have to take a boat for a day to get to the closest town, you know, there's, it's like so disconnected and they're like, when's the direct TV getting here? And you're like, I think it might be a minute. You know, <laughs> like, you're like, first you gotta, uh-huh. like, there are a lot of things, like first you need a metal roof, you right. know, like you need to be able to keep stuff dry, you know, mm-hmm. Plumbing. and so, yeah, totally. General electricity. And so, so you know, I've been on enough trips like that where where you realize that they're really humans all over earth, you know, even if they're actively trying to preserve their, their traditional lifestyle, like they still want, you know refrigeration. They want access to medicine. They want communication. Like pretty much all humans want some degree of material comfort in their life, mm-hmm. and and that's only fair. You know, it's like you know I want to be relatively comfortable. I want you know climate controlled at least to some extent. You know I want like flooring. You know it's like I want to not get parasites. Things like that. Like I want access to clean food and water. And so, you know I think that when you Focus on environmental issues it's important to also sort of focus on the equity issues of like well humans like all humans should be entitled to to certain standards of living, and so I think that if you're trying to solve environmental issues without also focusing on the equity side, like making sure that all humans you know are are equally able to take care of themselves mm-hmm. uh, you know basically it's just not fair to to mm-hmm. to not do those both at the same time. And so that sort of informed the initial projects from the Honnell Foundation is like looking for environmental projects that also improve standard of living that like right. helped helped folks. And over the years, we basically always wound up choosing solar projects because they just often are the most elegant solutions to to those kinds of problems. Where it's like good for the environment, good for people, you know, clear win win. And and then after several years of supporting a bunch of different solar projects, we were like, we should just make this explicit because at a certain point. You know, you may as well focus on what you already know and what you're kind of good at. And and I just, I just think solar is such an obvious solution to many human problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, the sun is shining down and beating us with, uh, you know, all kinds of power that we can utilize if we can figure it out. And you know, what's problematic about that? I mean, it seems like it's easier to implement a solar solution in a developing country than it is in the United States. Like, solar has been so problematic and tricky to get implemented in houses across America. This is like Bill Maher talks about it all the time. Like every every show, he has like a countdown. He's been trying to get solar at his house for like you know years, and he's like it's day you know, one thousand. And there's all these like regulatory hurdles. Like we've had a couple companies come out to our house and do. Like an evaluation, mm-hmm. and there's always some reason why it was just ridiculously expensive or way too complicated. Yeah, That's, I mean, because I just feel like it should be easy. You know, it should, my point, my my larger point is like, why isn't it just like super easy to get this done? It is. I mean, I
0: don't know. I think a lot of that is personal experience and depending on your home, because you know, I've put solar on a couple of homes, well, a bunch of homes, now through the foundation and then, but my own as well, and it's like
1: super easy. Is it? You, yeah, I mean, and I need like, to talk to you about who I should be calling. Yeah,
0: totally. I mean. I've done uh, most of that stuff remotely too or like uh, my home in suburban Las Vegas, uh, I was actually on a climbing trip in Wyoming at the time living in the van. I basically made some calls, people went to the house, they installed solar, mm-hmm. turned it on, all worked fine. I, I was like never even involved, you know, I just wow. wired money online, it was like totally chill. Wow. Um, I think a lot of that just has to do with, you know, where you live mm-hmm. and uh, how difficult the system is and things like that. But But either way, I mean, in general, it's not, That hard in the U.S. and I mean, and you see that because uh, rates of solar adoption are are steadily increasing. You know, it's all sort of exponential growth. It's like seems to be doing pretty well.
1: Right. All right. Well, I need to to revisit this. Then. Yeah, you should because
0: also the cost of panels has been exponentially dropping Mm -hmm. to the point that nowadays, you know, the panels themselves aren't even the most expensive part of the install anymore. It's like the actual labor and like the Uh the racking. You know, like the other things, like everything else that goes into installation.
1: Right. So what are the what are the projects that you want to be you know working on like the, what's the next you know level of what you're trying to accomplish?
0: Well, so um, we actually just closed our our latest open call for uh, uh, what we call the the core fund grants, which mm-hmm. are sort of like the interesting like what we were talking about Car solar, the the Ecuadorian Amazon uh, solar boat project, um, things like that come through the the core fund, uh, which are basically like grants around the world for interesting solar projects. So, the latest round, you know we'll probably fund you know ten-ish projects like that, but we got well, we got hundreds of applications, and of those we probably had about fifty or sixty that are legitimately good applications, mm-hmm. but we can only fund the top ten or so. So really, there's tons of incredible ideas and good projects out there. It's just a matter of having enough money to actually you know implement them all, mm-hmm. which um, which you know we, we've, as you said, I mean you know, we gave away over a million dollars this this year, which. Um, for me personally, counts as tremendous success, you know, mm-hmm. because when I started the foundation, it was me donating fifty k a year of just my yeah. own money. So to see, you know, twenty times the impact as when I started, I'm like, oh, that's awesome to do right. twenty times more work. That's great. Right. But then also knowing that we could have a ten million dollar budget and still, I think ten probably actually would pretty much fill all the things that we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. But but you know, there are like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of good projects out there that that could be done.
1: Right. You know. There are individual changes that we can all make to live more sustainably. And then there are kind of institutional, social changes that we need to see move forward in order to really kind of affect the problem, the existential Mm. crisis that we're facing. And, you know, those personal changes can be, you know, everything from composting to your diet and where you buy your clothes and all that Mm. kind of thing. Um, One of the things that you, Said in in some article or 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 something someplace you wrote this I believe that I hadn't really thought a lot about but is so obvious which is like where are you banking hmm. right
0: mm-hmm. yeah I wrote not bad about yeah that.
1: like talk talk a little bit about that
0: and yeah, so actually I'll talk about that but then I also have some things to say about personal choice like that wow. also because so so banking is pretty much the the number one thing that you can do for personal impact which is funny because it's so much less satisfying than like changing your diet mm-hmm. let's say because it's less obvious. But the thing is wherever you bank, you know, they're using your money the whole time that it sits in whatever yeah. account, you know, like you put it into an account and then they're investing it in things, they're spending it, they're like using it basically. And so, you know, a famous example is like Wells Fargo with the Dakota Access pipeline or something. But in general, every bank, or, you know, every major bank in America is supporting both sides of the political aisle. They're making political donations, they're uh, you know, investing in fossil fuels. Like basically if you're using a mainstream big bank, it for sure is doing stuff that you personally wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're on the mm-hmm. left or the right, it's like your bank is for sure doing stuff that you wouldn't want it to do. And so, you know, the solution there is to to bank with you know nonprofit credit unions, things like that, like local banks, smaller scale banks, like just bank with a with a, with a bank that is not going to be mm-hmm. you know investing in like fossil fuel infrastructure and things like that that you might right. not personally support.
1: Right. Is there a resource where you can go online and get like somebody who's done like a consumer reports on this where there's like a not sure. house of like under, seeing what all the banks are doing?
0: Yeah, I'm sure there, there is. must I, be. Yeah, there must be. So my sister actually many years ago before I started my foundation, before I started any of this stuff, um, she gave me this book called The Better World Shopping Guide which I think uh-huh. is out of print now, but at the time was this incredible resource where for any consumer product, including banking and things like that, you could flip through and basically see all brands listed from A to F. And it was uh, in, it, it was eye opening for me at the time because I realized I could go to the grocery store, look at breads and see two different breads on the shelf, same price point, same basic quality, except one, you know, is basically actively supporting the type of world that I wanna live mm-hmm. in, you know, like paying its uh, employees good living wages and like, you know, providing maternity leave and things like that. And the other is like ruthlessly exploiting its its workers and, you know, degrading the earth. And it's the exact same product. And you're kind of like, well, obviously I should support the one mm-hmm. that, you know, makes for a better world. And so, yeah, the better world shopping guide, my my <laughs> yeah. uh, my sister, she signed it for me said, said, uh, For Alex, in case you ever start giving a shit, love Stacia. (laughs) Like it was a pretty classic, (laughs) you know. Because uh, especially when I was younger, Uh, I was just all a little more like hard line. You know, I was just so focused on climbing. Look at you now, totally all about it. Yeah. Well, but that's that's the interesting thing about like the long, gradual, you know, awakening. Like you just learn more and you start to care more about it, and then you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, and then sort of virtuous cycle.
1: I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media, this beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Well, that keys into something I think you wanted to talk about which is like this personal choice thing.
0: Yeah, right? no, so it's funny because I've sort of come full circle on this a little bit because obviously I care a lot about personal choices. I went vegetarian because you know or like sort of aspirationally vegan mm-hmm. basically partially because I'm lactose intolerant, partially because uh, you know, basically just it's a much lower impact for, for diet. Um, you know, I changed my banking, I've, you know, changed all kinds of lifestyle things in an effort to, to minimize my, my personal impact on earth. And even starting the Hana Foundation was to some extent to know that I personally was doing as much good as harm, Mm -hmm. you know, because just by living and traveling to climb and all that, like, obviously I'm having a negative impact on the world. And so I'd like to think that I'm doing as much good as, as harm. Um, but now I'm sort of coming back around to it where I feel like the whole, you know, onus on personal choice has been, been sort of foisted upon us by outside forces. You know, it's like basically industry telling us like, you should think about your choices rather than have the industry regulated in Mm -hmm. a way that's appropriate. You know, because even if, and actually COVID has been an interesting measure of this because even with travel lockdowns for the whole world for the last year, you know, global uh, emissions have only dropped, you know, seven or 10% or something like 7%. I mean, that's still barely in line with Paris Accord type things. Mm -hmm. And so if you think that, all of human society has fundamentally changed for the last year and we're still barely hitting the numbers that we pledged to meet for the latest round of climate accord, uh, you know, negotiations are kind of like, that's crazy, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It just shows the scale of, yeah, way. it shows the scale of real change yeah. that has to happen. And that kind of thing only happens with policy because it's one thing for individuals to like choose the right product all the time. But it's another thing to just make sure that all the products have to be made well to begin with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like limiting pollution in different ways. But policy
1: like is also a, re- a reflection of popular sentiment, right? Like if, if people are thinking harder about their personal choices and that becomes more important then culture reflects that and society become or, or policy becomes a downstream kind of reflection of that. Yeah, like you need I mean, both.
0: Yeah, yeah, you do need both, but it's basically like, that's like a chicken and the egg sort of mm-hmm. thing. And I'm sort of arguing that I think that it's probably easier to lead with policy changes. Yeah. You know like in the US, you know, the adoption of electric cars and things like that and like basically public transit and changing transportation models. You know, transit accounts for like a third of our our uh, carbon emissions. And so, you know, it's like an area ripe for change. An easy way would just be to basically put a tax on gasoline mm-hmm. or something like that basically on on carbon emissions and that would drive all kinds of changes in consumer behavior. You know, rather than just hoping that individuals will go out and like buy a Prius or like yeah. buy a Rivian or whatever. You know, it's like
1: it's tricky though, man. When you have legislators who are you know beholden to their constituents and the lobbyists that are you know well funded to push a certain agenda on behalf of a you know a sector totally. of the economy, and that's why these things move at a glacial pace. And I feel like like um, you know voter pressure on our legislators is so important. And that's why you do need to you 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 do need to kind of take these personal choices to heart and make them known so that there is that pressure. Though yeah,
0: I I agree with that. But
1: I know what you're saying. I mean it's like you can't move the needle on like I'm gonna go vegan and this is going to solve the problem. Yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean you going vegan is is a good step for sure. But it's like it's good. You know, the impact in is Brazil tiny. Will, will it's still there's be a, right. cut in the Amazon. Yeah, 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 You know, it's like,
1: but it's also there's a symbolic power. Or like when you you as somebody who so many people look up to, and you have a lot of people that follow your lead and all of that. Like there's a there's meaning in like the, these choices that you're making because there's a downstream impact on how everyone else is going to think about those. A choices. A little bit,
0: but I still think that that I know you
1: get a lot of shit though.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, well, that's big. whatever. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you get a lot of shit no matter yeah. what. You know, so it doesn't totally matter. And. You know, and, and while we're talking about getting a lot of shit, like, it's not like I'm just like advocating for gas tax because I know that kind of thing is, is super nuanced because in a lot of ways that's regressive because mm-hmm. it affects uh, lower income folks way more than, yeah. than hiring. And, and that's not totally fair. So it has to be very finely executed. You know, It's like, yeah, I, I get all that. I'm just saying that I think that starting from the policy side can potentially have bigger impacts in mm-hmm. the world. You know, individual choice is great for individuals that have the bandwidth to think about it. Right. You know what I mean? And like, I have plenty of free time. Yeah, I read books about right. the environment and think right, about it. Right, right. But like the vast majority of Americans, you know, like if you're working a minimum wage job, like you are not going home and reading books about the environment mm-hmm. to like, think about minimizing your footprint. Sure. You're like, you're struggling, you know, like it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. But basically, so I think that putting the responsibility on the individual is is sort of you know, most individuals are never gonna have the time to think about yeah. like, they, they don't have no, the luxury course, to reflect on that. Of course, you know? of course. Yeah. And
1: it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be their responsibility exactly. when that is trying to survive, of course.
0: Yeah, um, like in an ideal world, uh, when you go to a store or something, every product would be justly made, you know, like fairly manufactured mm-hmm. with no pollution and like no externalized costs and all that. And And that's kind of the world that I think most of us would like to live in you yeah know? like you would like to think that anything you buy will not be you mm-hmm. know exploiting child labor in other parts of the world or something like that.
1: It is like an arms but. race though because I do feel like we're we're moving into an economic culture in which people really do care about those kinds of things and it's incumbent mm-hmm. upon these, Corporations to be transparent about their Mm. supply chain and how they treat their workers and and the like, and you know the the average consumer, if given the opportunity to think about it for a minute, is going to make the better choice. Like we're good people and we all want a better world, Um, but 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 these changes are glacial. You know they're they're so right, and we're running out of time. Yeah, so short of massive sweeping policy change. Like do you, and as somebody who has spent, you know, I know this past year you've gone down the rabbit hole on a lot of this stuff. Like, like do you are you optimistic? Like, where's your head at in terms of like how are we doing?
0: I mean, I'm I'm personally always pretty optimistic. Like I'm, and you know, even I think uh, you know optimism and pessimism aside, I think that a realistic assessment of of global climate, or basically a realistic assessment is that my personal lifestyle will probably be fine regardless. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I'm lucky enough that, that I go climbing all the time. And you know, if like imp like climate impacts affect me I can move to other places and you know, and so it, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the, and, and that's the real thing about climate change is that for most of us, like it's not gonna, it's not gonna affect us personally, you know what I mean? Like anyone listening to this podcast basically is comfortable enough that they're not gonna be the ones mm-hmm. that suffer from from the effects of climate change. It's like, you know, subsistence farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, that have crushing drought and then have crop failures and can't feed their families, you know what I mean? But like that's so far removed from our reality that it seems mm-hmm. to be like, oh, that, you know, we don't even know what that is. So we're, mm-hmm. we're not stressed about it. I don't know. So I mean, yeah, I, I'm optimistic that that humanity can sort of confront and, and and solve some of these problems. But even if we do move too slowly and it doesn't really work out, I'm, you know, I'm also sort of recognize the fact that, uh, you know, like realistically, my life will probably play out along a certain path regardless. Yeah. You know, um, which which is incredibly unfair. Which is a big part mm, of why I started the Haunted Foundation right. and things like that, because it's like, are you
1: are you? I, do you think you guys are going to have kids? Yeah. 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 I think so that changes like how you see all this stuff. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: you mean, because you worry about the world. Right, that well, you just, you just start
1: up thinking, yeah, you just, your perspective is tweaked. Yeah. But the thing is like, you know, your lane is solar right now, but that's an example of technology that currently exists to solve these problems. Like so, most of these problems, we have the ability to solve now. Yeah, it's no, really I, about, I think it's about political will. Like exactly. you read, Drawdown and it's like, here's all exactly, the things. Exactly. You know, we, if we just do all these yeah. things, we're good. And it's like, why exactly. can't we just do them?
0: No, that's exactly you know? It. I know. And that's like probably the most frustrating thing about reading environmental books is that you're like, oh, all the solutions are, here. it's like a buffet of solutions. Mm-hmm. Like Drawdown is a literal buffet there's so of many. solutions. Yeah, yeah there's like, so many. Let's just do the, five of these. Totally, right? totally. And so many of them are just such obvious. And, and that's my thing with solar is there's like an obvious win-win. You're like, mm-hmm. this is such a clear solution to certain problems. And like in Drawdown, one of the biggest uh, you know, climate impacts we can have is women's education right. around the world, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, that seems like an obvious thing. Regardless, you know, like climate aside, even if you don't believe in climate change, you should definitely believe in educating women. You know, it's yeah. like that's like basic fairness. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, we're I both know, like sigh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I know. Well, you know, yeah. it it is frustrating because because there is a ticking clock here, and you say like, yeah, your lifestyle probably won't be that changed, but you know, if you live in Miami or you live in, mm-hmm. you know like the low lying areas of, of, you know, Southeast Asia, like this is this is a very real threat to you. Yeah, your, there were
0: even uh, last year in California, you know the wildfire mm-hmm. season was so crazy because of drought that, you know, and, and I think this kind of, I don't know like I had an experience, um, my family has a place in, in Tahoe that I like grew up going to this like mm-hmm. cabin in, in, in Tahoe. And last summer, the wildfire smoke was so thick across the lake that you couldn't see the other side of, yeah. of Lake Tahoe. And uh, at one point I saw this like party boat coming into shore that like a big like tug almost with like tons of people on it, like partying on the boat. Like, I don't really know what was going on, but I sort of joking, it was like, oh, look, it's climate refugees like escaping because it's like, <laughs> it looks like the ocean and right. it looks like a barge, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like the kind of scene that you expect uh-huh. to see in, in uh, Southern Europe, you know, right. with like, folks like fleeing I mean North Syria. Africa or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like fleeing to Italy. And, you know, I was kind of like, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but then I was like, this is kind of true. You know, <laughs> it's like, cause right. all these folks in California the sky's is like, on fire. Yeah, the sky's on fire and people were bailing out of the Bay area to try to come to the mountains, but then the mountains are on fire, you know, cause the Bay area was like crazy fire this year too. And, I, you know, I don't know if this will wind up mattering in the world, but it is interesting when mm. effects of, of climate change start to be felt closer to home, you yeah. know, it's like, when you can't spend a summer in California, people are like, "What the heck like that's crazy, mm-hmm. you know especially you know I spent my whole life uh spending summers in California, and kind of like that's a first you know that's kind of unprecedented
1: but yeah i live I've lived here for i don't know twenty five years and the fire season when we had the big fires down here and had to get evacuated, it was bananas. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. I've gone through fires plenty of fire seasons, that was completely another animal altogether. Yeah.
0: Especially when you when you consider that, I mean, fires are a natural part of the the life cycle of the mm-hmm. forest. You know, it's like when you're in the Sierra Nevada, you're like, Yeah, this is natural and it should be fine, and yet you know, the sky is blacked out for, for mm-hmm. almost a month in Tahoe this summer. It was totally insane. And you're like, that's not natural. Like, yeah, that. totally that's totally, that's craziness. It's a different thing. Yeah.
1: Um. Swishing gears a little bit. Yeah, yeah totally. From, <laughs> yeah, from like, environmental how, can we, apocalyptic. How much more? Can we dig into this?
0: Dude, um, I could talk about it all day. Yeah, no, like, I, oh, I,
1: I, yeah, like uh, I could too. It's like um, super
0: depressing, but also you know super important. You're like this is probably the most we need important to be talking about on. it. Yeah, exactly. You know,
1: and if that just moves the needle with one person, that's a mm-hmm. win. You know, what else are we doing here? Like, what's the we point, could point of doing this climbing, stuff? You know? we, could, we talk about climbing. <laughs> with, uh, um, you are in a unique situation though because you did this crazy climb, like, you know, how do you, and, and, and your life is kind of devoted to iterative, uh, you know, difficulty, like continuing to put yourself in difficult situations and master those. Um, but, you know, it's hard to trump free soloing El <laughs> Cap. So like, you're, you know, what are you gonna do? Like, how do you find, like, how do you shift gears and find meaning in a different way in this thing that you do. I mean, you've kind of already answered it. You're doing all these other things. You've devoted your life to these environmental causes. Like you live a very big life that is providing meaning not just for yourself, but for a lot of people. Um, But it is, you know, just from the pure like athlete mindset, like how do you get jacked up about like another adventure Um, when you've climbed a mountain, you know, you literally climbed the mountain.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's a totally fair question, and I think it's taken. I mean, uh, you know, I free sold El Cap. I think in 2017, and the tour mm-hmm. was in 2018, and so it's kind of taken me a year and a half. But um, but really, the season is sort of the beginning of like a real fire or like real hunger for for challenging things again. And so, um, I mean, you're right that nothing will ever trump El Cap. Like nothing, yeah. nothing will be better than than El Cap. But um, you know, but there's still some other things that are pretty cool that I'm uh-huh. excited about. The world's a big place. Yeah, exactly. And and actually, um, a couple of things I'm excited about right now are just at home, like projects in Red Rock, uh, which is the climbing area outside Mm -hmm. of Las Vegas. And uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you just get inspired by certain things, and you're like, this seems crazy and really hard. But then you're like, I think I could do it. And then Mm -hmm. you're like, Can I do it? And then you have to find out if you can do it. And then. And and really, that's like the the whole joy of the process is the finding out. Like, well, can I do it? Like, uh-huh. is it crazy? Let's let's find out.
1: Right. Am um, I right in thinking that before COVID hit, you were thinking of doing the Seven Summits?
0: Yeah. Um, though that, I mean, I still would like to in my life. That's not like a. Uh, that's not really like a big climbing goal. Right. I mean, that's like funny a whole because, different kind of thing. Yeah. I mean. For me, that stems largely like uh, I don't know if you ever read the book, The Seven Summits by Dick Bass. He was the first person no, he no. was, uh, he's kind of a non climber. He owned Snowbird back in the day, he's like oh, a businessman. Wow. I think he may have been oil or something, but mm. um, but I think he was like a Texas businessman or something, but he just got this like wild idea that he wanted to climb the highest points on earth. And uh, so he was guided on him. And this is like before it was a thing and people did it anyway, it's a great book. It's kind of like classic adventure writing. And you know, I read that many, many years ago, and was like, "That's awesome!" Like, you know, I'd like to do that in my yeah. life. And now it's a little bit weird because Seven Summits is so commercialized that yeah. uh, real climbers kind of thumb their nose at it, like that's not cool. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I still kind of want to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but that's not that's not a like a rad climbing project. Yeah. That's just like a personal. I'd I'd love to do that in my life, but we'll see how it plays out. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, for what you do to not like climb the seven tallest mountains, like why wouldn't you do that?
0: Yeah, I've climbed a. Uh, Climbed a lot of other mountains, yeah. This it is not a.
1: What do you think this. when you see, you know, remember when those images uh, were coming through from Everest, and it was like the, you know, like there were just so many people up there, and it's like a traffic jam, and yeah,
0: yeah, you know. it's crazy. No, I, I find that somewhat distasteful. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, oh, basically, that's just not the experience that I'm seeking in the mountains, uh-huh. and especially on on Everest in particular, there, there are ropes going the whole way up, so everyone's just like clipped into a rope the whole way and somebody else has put those ropes up for them. And so, you know, I personally have sort of mixed feelings about like outsourcing the risk and the challenge of climbing. Like I don't wanna pay to somebody else box. to put the rope up for me. You know, it's like, if I can't put the rope up myself, I probably shouldn't be climbing it. You know, and not to say that that's a standard that that all people should should hold, you know, cause uh, you know, I'm sure, if, and and I think climbing Everest is really, really hard regardless, you know, mm-hmm. I think that even if you are just following the rope that somebody put, it's still quite difficult, you know, it's a challenging physical experience. But um but I don't know, I just feel like if I want to go up there I want to like actually climb something. You know? Yeah. Are are you gonna climb mountains?
1: I don't think so. Why not? I don't think that's my thing, man. But you could. It doesn't I don't it doesn't I mean I could, but I have got I don't the feel the pull. It. I don't feel like the allure. You don't care about world. getting on top of things? it doesn't like I love getting that's on top not my of thing. Like I, I want to go like in the ocean and swim down. Huh. Oh. You know. That's not my thing. Or swim across. Huh. But I don't think about going up that much. Hmm. It's different, you know. I went climbing a couple times with some friends, and I was like, I don't think this is for me. That's fair. It was weird. You but know?
0: mountaineering though might be a yeah, like because that's basically like ultra running, right? Like trudging up hills as it's long different.
1: as you can. I like the idea of of all these like FTKs that these guys, you know like Killian's mm-hmm. running up these mm-hmm. mountains and seeing how fast he can do it. Like, I, I just like the idea of like creating your own adventure, like you're doing in Red Rock. Like, yeah. here's this thing, we have all of this here, like we don't need some, you know, like race or exactly. event. Like us so just figure it out. One of
0: the things I'm playing with this season is uh, a traverse of the entire range in Red Rock, which is like this, actually, as the crow flies, it's probably only like 10 or 15 miles, like linearly, but you're uh-huh. going up and over all these different peaks. And so I haven't quite pieced it all together yet because it's incredibly complicated route finding and climbing. And, and I'm, I'm climbing classic climbing routes and then downsoling other climbing routes and like going up and down to tag the different summits, but right. also do a bunch of good climbs. But um, it's coming in at like 25,000 feet of vertical or something. Wow. And, um, it's like a really, really big traverse. Wow. And, uh, you know, we'll see if I manage to do it and, and how exactly it shapes up. And I'm like, what an adventure, you know, to like leave your house and yeah. then just climb this entire skyline that you can see. From, from anywhere in town. It's, you know, it's similar
1: cool. to the thing you did with Tommy Caldwell though, exactly. right? Like, yeah, really like 17 peaks or something like that and like 20 K of Something per? like that. Yeah. yeah,
0: actually it was funny because with these really long and technical rock climbing traverses it's actually hard to quantify the the vert and like the numbers because uh, GPS doesn't really work when you're climbing vertical routes. Uh-huh. You know, like when you're doing sheer vertical walls, your GPS will like ping, ping you all over the place. So it like messes up all the numbers. Um, so, I, I don't know. Have you had that know. experience? Like, if you go up really steep hills with GPS, I, I, don't, it go up, like,
1: I don't go up hills that steep, uh, steep enough need, to do that. <laughs> it, uh,
0: like, because basically GPS doesn't really work on a vertical plane. Right. You know, it's like more for, mm. like, uh, mm-hmm. horizontal. Mm. But, um, and then the thing I did with Tommy last summer in, in Rocky Mountain National Park, wound up taking us like 36 hours. So, all yeah. of our devices died anyway, because your batteries right. don't last that long if they're tracking you, GPS. Wasn't
1: there like a, you missed a drop off or somebody something happened there was a bit and of you a had botch. like no lights at night yeah. and
0: stuff. Yeah, we had, well, more important than we had no pants. So, we were like at 13,000 feet in running shorts all night oh, and it was, uh, it was pretty character building. Yeah, but.
1: What has Tommy been up to? He's like, your main, he's like your main guy, right? Like he's like your go-to adventure. He's, he's one of my
0: best adventure partners yeah. for sure. Um, actually, I, I just climbed with him last week. Like the day I got home from, from this expedition mm. Guyana, uh, Tommy just happened to be in, in Las Vegas uh, climbing something. So we managed right. to sneak out for a day, but um, he, he's been doing some home repair. He's like right. doing some. he's doing a plumbing project on his house. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't been climbing that much this winter, uh-huh. but, uh, but he's, always, he's just such an incredible climber that mm. you know, even relatively off the couch, he's he's done it his whole life.
1: And are you um, doing back to the environmental stuff, are you doing another podcast like with the Washington Post? With that, uh, I'm not sure. There's nothing
0: official with that I might be. And I might be, uh, yeah, basically interviewing uh, environmental leaders or or sort of scientists about climate Uh change, I think, which if it happens, uh, I'd be pretty excited about, but honestly, sort of intimidated because, you know, as you know, most podcasting is just chit chatting with people. You, you rarely have to know a subject super well.
1: But the thing you know? is, you don't have to hold yourself out. You're just, like, they'll be so excited to talk to you, and they know that you're not, you know, a PhD in whatever it is that they are. And so they'll explain it to you. Yeah, but don't you th- And you're feel trying like... to be a cipher for the audience anyway. That's true. But you, know? you still
0: feel like you should have enough of an understanding to at least ask interesting questions. Yeah, you like, read books,
1: you'll be fine. Yeah, we'll, yeah, you know? okay,
0: well, that's, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if that, uh, yeah. I don't know.
1: Speaking of that, <laughs> like on this, this deep dive that you did this past year, like what have, you, what have you learned that you didn't know like before COVID when it comes to the environmental stuff?
0: I don't know, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, so on this trip in Guyana, I just finished this book, Energy and Civilization. This mm-hmm. like baklov smells like this super dense tome about sort of the progression of different energy systems in in human civilization. And it was interesting. I mean, I think that book gave me uh, an appreciation of how long and slowly the transitions between energy uh systems are, mm-hmm. you know, basically like going from, you know, human power to to like the the introduction of the steam engine to, you know, coal-fired to eventually uh, you know, oil, like full on fossil fuels. Um it's just like each transition takes quite a long time, and uh, it's given me an interesting perspective, I guess, on like our current transition to renewables and what you know what that will take. And one of the interesting things I got from the book was that um, you know, every transition has been powered by the the previous fuel. Mm-hmm. Let's say, you know, so like the transition to coal use is like you know powered by by steam engines, right, and whatever else. You're so,
1: reliant on the the yeah the previous the, energy right. model
0: mm-hmm. and which is funny because that's a common criticism of renewables It's like, oh, well, it's, you know all based on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And You're kind of like, well, yeah, because any transition is gonna be based on the, the previous system, which I found slightly heartening in a way because I've always found it like, you know it's a little bit of a bummer that like to build, you know uh, wind turbines, let's say you have to uh, mill a bunch of steel and mm-hmm. like that steel is all being powered by, you know, those plants are all being powered by fossil fuels. And so you're kind of like, is it even worth building wind turbines if it's all if all the raw materials behind it are being mined and, and, and milled th- through fossil fuel extraction? You're like, is that worth it? And you're kind of like, yeah. I mean, basically- It's like answer a necessary is, evil of yeah, it exactly, iterating to the exactly. next thing.
1: I mean, that's a big thing with, with the electric cars, right? Like who's powering mm-hmm. the Tesla grid? Like the, what's the carbon footprint of that? Like it's massive.
0: Though that though, I mean, when you do the math on it, even if it's all powered by coal, it's still better than mm-hmm. than an internal combustion engine car. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, yeah, it's still a step in the right direction. But I, I think the takeaway with all those, you know, sort of the messy technical questions of, of energy transitions is like, you still have to take these small steps in a different direction if you're ever going to get anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's like if you're hoping to decarbonize the grid or like to change, energy systems, it's like, you have to start taking some steps. Uh-huh. You know, even if they're not perfect, even if it's not hundred uh, you know, percent correct, like you have to at least move in a direction.
1: And an appreciation that these things take time.
0: Yeah, no, totally. Right. I mean, it's, it's not that removed from like athletic performance. You know? It's like, if you wanna get better at something, like you have to just yeah. put in the days, like grinding away, you know, training. It's like, yeah. you know, some days you suck and you just keep grinding away at it and eventually, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully eventually you do something that's actually meaningful.
1: Have you gotten your Rivian truck yet? No, no. <laughs> when is are those? A, what is he going to start I, shipping those Noda, things? No,
0: uh, in uh, June I think. Yeah, I had just got an email that was like uh-huh. uh, configure your pre-order, blah blah blah.
1: I figured uh, it's got to be getting close because RJ really started close. posting a lot, like taking oh, the he? trucks out, and oh, like yeah. yeah, and I was like, oh, they must be getting ready because like it's yeah. been underground for a long time. No,
0: it's, it's happening. They're uh, yeah. Yeah, I just configured my pre-order. Oh, you did.
1: Yeah, it's pretty Shows cool what they've done. So they took over, like they they took over like an old. I don't know Nissan factory or something like that, like outside of Chicago, yeah. and like like just retrofitted the whole thing and made it like sustainable and mm-hmm. brought in like amazing chefs and like used materials from the area to like mm-hmm. you know like re- recyclable materials and and like wood that was like in the vicinity to build the whole place out. Totally. And turn did you have you been to the factory? I haven't been to the manufacturing plant. I've been to the
0: the headquarters, uh-huh. which is outside of Detroit, sort of classic right. auto manufacturer, you know, but. No, um, no, it's, it's super. I mean, when I went to the headquarters uh, for, for the company outside Detroit, mm-hmm. it was like full on vision of futuristic. It's like kind right. of what you would expect from like a new, you know, technological startup sort of happening, I was like blown away. Right. I had this VR experience there where uh, I was like in a room and I put on like a VR headset and then basically like sampled an assortment of their like futuristic ideas, you know, like like concept vehicles, uh-huh. but you could like walk around the space with a VR headset and like interact with their concept vehicles. Oh, and wow. I was like totally blew my mind. I was wow. like I was like is this Star Trek? You know, I was like <laughs> it's like where am I? Uh-huh. And you know, in classic like nice new facility with, with uh, you know, it's like just clean and well lit and like classy with like mm. electric trucks all over and I was like this is so
1: right. Like, like not what you think of Detroit yeah, so being in the, in the auto industry. No, I was yeah. like, this is the future for sure. Yeah, that's cool. It's really. Have you cool. done Have you done any VR stuff around climbing? Um, actually, I'm supposed to be doing a
0: VR project this year, um, like filming in the next oh, month, wow. and then something in Europe. That's cool. Yeah, I think it actually has the potential to be really cool, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, I had um, I had this guy Michael Muller in here, who's a oh, yeah. big photographer am, with the shark him? stuff. Yeah, the sh- yeah Dude. so. His he showed VR me his stuff, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Dude. it's insane. Yeah, it totally know? blows your mind. Yeah, yeah.
0: he actually, he showed me the same thing and you put on, you're like, oh, oh, right. it's like pretty mega.
1: Right, and they're using it for like PTSD and people, like uh, not just like an experience, PTSD. but like also, no, like help <laughs> with people's fear responses. Yeah, You yeah, know, yeah. like it's pretty interesting. And so I was just imagining, like that in the climbing context. Like somebody who's afraid of heights or like that's their big thing. I think if somebody's right? afraid
0: of heights, they probably should not watch my VR experience. <laughs> I, know, right? I yeah. think it might be a bit much.
1: <laughs> no. The yeah. But um, but you know, listen, to have that, like somebody who's not able to ever have that kind of somebody who's in a wheelchair totally. where there's never gonna be able to have that experience to be able to like totally. feel with that feels Or even like
0: or or even just a gym climber who's just mm-hmm. realistically never gonna go to yeah. some of these places. Like the, the guy that I'm, I'm working with on the VR experience um, shot an Everest VR piece, like a three episode, uh-huh. uh, you know, basically he goes to the summit of Mount Everest in, in VR. And I found it incredibly immersive and rich in a way that I did not expect because you know, I, I've read tons of books about Everest over the years. Mm. And then to actually be in it in VR and to be able to look around and like interact with the landscape, I was like, this is so much better than all the books wow. I've read. I was like, this is yeah. crazy.
1: That's you know, the future. I mean, those experiences are going to be ubiquitous that, that's the in the thing. next five or 10 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, like wearing noise-canceling headphones with a good headset with like high-res, really uh-huh. good, uh, you know, not too like jerky. And I mean, like, obviously, the technical side of it will only improve. Yeah. And you're just like, it's just so. It's, it's so getting real. there. It's
1: like, it's still not quite there, but I feel like they're right well, on the precipice of it just being.
0: Yeah, Amazing. I've always felt like it wasn't quite there, and then I watched the VR experience, and I was mm. like, "This is pretty there," yeah. you know. And that's kind of what inspired me to to feel like it was worth right. shooting a VR piece. Right. So I was like, even if the current headsets aren't perfect, you know, someone will be able to use that footage on on better models soon. Yeah, and it's all it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah,
1: it's cool. It's yeah. cool. So when you do that, then like if you so if you're gonna produce that, you got to get up on some wall, and then you have. Like some kind of headset with cameras all around, no, it? like no, how do they it's, do it's, that? The,
0: um, it's the opposite, so the idea is that the subject like climbs through the frame, so the camera is fixed in a certain place, and I it's see. like full three sixty camera you know crazy VR setup, and then the climber climbs through the the frame I got it um and that, that's to apparently to minimize motion sickness because if the subject itself is the vR focus like like basically, if you're That's wearing a VR your headset nausea. and everything's moving yeah. around you, you get incredibly motion sick. Mm-hmm. But if when you're wearing the headset, you feel like you're in a stable place and you're able to control the vision and like look around mm-hmm. and then you can just see someone doing an action in your frame, mm-hmm. then it makes you way less sick. I
1: see, but but how would they do that on a big wall?
0: Like, I guess a lot, it's 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 hard work. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, you have to like rig a separate repel line, you know, near the root fix the camera to the wall, like uh-huh. near the climbing route and then sort of center the camera so that you're looking at the climber as the climber goes up the but wall. The camera
1: remains static. Yeah, but the it camera it remains too? static. They, it seems like they could do some stuff with drones too.
0: No, no, it's no. too shaky. Yeah. And, uh, and the point is for the camera to stay totally static because ideally I think for the viewer, you, they wanna be in like a swivel chair or something or like standing uh-huh. in a room where they can fully move around at their own pace and the way they want. And there'll be something happening in the frame that's like the movie. Right. But they can also just not watch the movie and just look behind them and like look at the view the whole time. Right, right,
1: right. But I think with the Muller stuff, it was him. It's his point of view. Like swimming outside of the cages and all that. Yeah,
0: yeah, different deal. So. But maybe that's also why his felt so traumatic to me is because it's like (laughs) Macy vaguely motion sick and like it's all kind of crazy.
1: I think the trauma might have something to do with the fact (laughs) that he swims outside of a a cage and he's with great whites. Yeah, yeah, that too. It's unbelievable. No, I think
0: um the climbing stuff that we'll be shooting is sort of the other end of the spectrum where it's like more mm-hmm. expansive, broader views. You know a lot of it is about putting somebody in a position that they could never see, like the Mueller shark stuff feels very like intimate and yeah. tight, you know you're like, "Oh my God, the shark's about to eat me. It's yeah. like super close and seems scary. I think the climbing footage is more about being in a spectacular place and having a super broad vista. I got it. Yeah, yeah. where you can like see the world around you and then also witness somebody climbing something totally spectacular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Unless we get a great white to make a cameo. (laughs) We'll just just see. (laughs)
1: Combine these two worlds. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Two in a day. Shark climbers. Um, You're in, speaking of production, you're in LA. You're doing like Leno's Garage. Yeah. (laughs) What is
0: that about? Uh, I honestly don't know. I uh, I just do what I'm told, you know, I do. They're what like, my we want you to be says. on
1: the show. So you're gonna go to like his warehouse and like see all his cars. Yeah, I think, I think Jay Lennon's garage is
0: where he like chats with people about right. their cars. And I yeah. think he's a car collector, right? So he has all kinds of interesting- He's like, kind of a
1: car collector. He's yeah. got like- Multiple warehouses of oh, like yeah. hundreds oh. of cars. Whoa. Like, cra- he has one of the craziest car collections really? in the world. Yeah.
0: Well, so I know nothing about cars. Right. And uh, I that's have my why, scrappy band. I know. That's yeah. why I, know. I
1: find this so interesting and hilarious.
0: But I think there's something to be said for talking about, you know, the utility of cars. Like, cause mm. basically, I don't care at all about my car, but I care about what it allows me to do and the life that it allows yeah. me to lead, you know, like being on the road and being able to climb full time. And I'm sure that or let's hope that that's a useful perspective for his show, Uh you know. where I'm like, oh, it's not so much about the car, it's about what I get to do
1: with the car. Right, he's got all these crazy antique cars, like steam powered engines Mm. and all this wild stuff. And he uh, like every weekend, there's this spot that's not far from where I live, where a lot of like motorcyclists and car enthusiasts, like go, Mm. it's called the rock store. It's like a little bar cafe or Mm. whatever. And it's like right where all these windy, cool like Canyon roads are. So he like, Drives past my house like every weekend. Oh, yeah. you get, and if you're just at the right place at the right time, you'll see him, but it's always like some completely crazy, crazy car. car. Yeah. Huh. Like, you know, huh. that like shouldn't, I'm like, is it even legal to drive that thing on the yeah, road? Door you door know, the, like stuff door like door that. Door so I'm sure it'll blow your mind. Oh, no, no. But I'm, I'm mean, just so, like good. curious, like what that conversation is going to be like. No, we'll see. We'll see.
0: <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I might be taking him climbing too or something. Oh, okay. So we'll just, we'll just you see go. how it all plays out. Right on. Um, yeah, I'm psyched.
1: Out in Burbank somewhere.
0: Uh, no, well, oh, I know, well, uh, I think Stony Point, it's okay. like a kind of historic climbing area, like north of here. Oh, that's
1: cool. But
0: we'll see, uh, I don't know, like all things in my life, I'm like, I don't really know. I'll just show up, <laughs> see how it goes. I'll just have a good time. Alex, you have a like, say in these things. You know, maybe, it's easier not to, uh-huh. you know, just, just like saying. honestly, my whole life, it's like easier to just go with go with the flow with mm-hmm. it. And you're like, cool, it's all a crazy adventure. I'm just on the ride and mm-hmm. see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: During the whole, Free solo craziness, did you ever max out and just be like, I can't, I need like a break. Like I gotta get out of here. I think I skipped one event, like in the whole
0: free solo film tour, which was like six or eight months of like nonstop scheduling. Sometimes two events in two different cities in the same day, Mm -hmm. like something in Chicago and something in SF in the same day, which is like pretty rugged when you add the flights in between everything. Um, I think in the whole tour, there was one event that I was supposed to go to that I was just like, I just can't. And I think yeah. I went to the climbing gym instead. Yeah. And uh, and it was only because either Jimmy or Chai, um, the co-directors like took it over for me. Mm-hmm. Like they did the event for mm-hmm. me that night or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I felt like it was pretty solid. But then funny you enough- You
1: showed up with a smile on your face. I felt, I mean, just from yeah. what I saw, it, you just, you completely were 100% present for it.
0: Well, that's the thing because I knew it's like a once in a lifetime yeah. adventure. You know, if, if you, instead of looking at it as like this heinous work experience, if you look at it as like this is a crazy adventure mm. that, you know, I'll tell my grandkids about, like the one time I got to sample the movie star life, Yeah. you know, then, then it makes it not that bad because. Mm-hmm. It's um, I kept calling it my deployment to Hollywood, you know, because I think of people being like deployed overseas <laughs> yeah. for six months, and it it did kind of feel like that because uh-huh. it's a totally different world, totally different scene. You know, I'm being taken places by car service, and I'm like. I don't use a car service, right. you know, like, I'm not used to having like a fancy SUV sitting out front mm. waiting for me to like whisk me to a hotel, yeah. but I'm just like, I'm just going with it, you know, I'm I'm doing what Brad does, Brad Pitt or whatever. Right. I'm like, what else?
1: I loved, like totally uh, I loved how North Face made a tuxedo for you, mm. which was pretty cool. Mm. Is that what you got married? Did you get married in the same tux? Yeah, you same did? tux,
0: uh-huh. yeah, classy. And funny enough, the formal wear stuff like that actually does get more comfortable if you wear it more. Uh-huh. You know, because I've only ever <laughs> worn formal wear like once, uh-huh. and you're like, "Oh, it's so starchy and painful and like not that nice." And then if you wear them a couple of times, you're actually like, "Yeah, it starts to break I'm in a little bit." Breaking out like, the
1: tux once a week, <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> for dude, the deployment.
0: Dude, the, for, at the Oscars, the uh-huh. tux was like so tight and crisp. That uh, I felt like my nipples chafed, like in the way that you read about that, like with marathon runners. You know, like if you're running 20 miles in the rain or whatever, that like you start chafing weird ways. You got a, you, like, had a
1: you had an injury at the Oscars. Well, totally. I was like, oh,
0: like I feel like I sandpaper my nipples with this like starched shirt. You know? uh-huh. I was like, this is heinous.
1: I'm sure you had some surreal <laughs> conversations with people. You know, yeah, I know. It was,
0: it makes- <laughs> I forget, yeah, Sonny too. Like my now yeah. wife had a uh, who was it. Uh, he won Best Supporting Actor, I think, for uh, like Green Book or uh forget his name.
1: Vigo Mortensen?
0: No, his uh Mahershal his co-star. Ali. Yeah, Mahush Yeah, Mahush Uh he was like walking by and basically like said hi to me and then was like turning to introduce himself to Sonny or something. Uh-huh. And she was like holding little like appetizer pizzas in both hands and fully just threw it on the floor and was like, so great to meet you. So, you know, like had this really uh-huh. like nice moment with him like <laughs> which she was like so charmed. Uh-huh. And then you know, like, he wandered on, he had this whole entourage with like a, a crew. And then as soon as he walked away, Sonny's like, Cleaning up her pizza off the floor, right. <laughs> fully like you know, but it was like this is my chance to meet Marshall. Right? Right. So it's like just like That's food on fine. the floor and hello, so great to meet you, right? Or you know, just things like that. Like it's just I fun. love
1: I love that. Um, well, the story that I heard, maybe it's apocryphal, was <laughs> that Jason Momoa was. Um, was going to be giving out the award but it was like he wanted to be if if Free Solo was going to win then he wanted to be the one to like say it cuz mm. he's like he's, yeah, he's a big climbing climber buddy and yeah, all that a, yeah, yeah he's a serious climber so it was pretty cool that he was the one here yeah he was he was like yeah. he was
0: genuinely like gave a really big hugs right. and super psyched. And he seems like a good dude dude yeah i mean you know i only met him briefly through the tour but super nice guy and uh-huh. he has like really legit climbing, climbing wall yeah. yeah yeah he has climbing walls at his house and so we went to his house and, and like climbed with he and his family and I was like, "You're really strong for a very big man."
1: He's huge. He's so big. Yeah, like how be- do you climb when you're that big?
0: Well, you just have to be really strong. Apparently, yeah. I uh, I belayed him in the climbing gym and was fully like, it's like scary to catch him on the other end of the rope because he's so much bigger than me that I was uh. like, I don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah, know? like I can't hold yeah, this guy up. Yeah, yeah. no, I wow. mean, I you know, obviously I caught him, but I like shot like a you know a cork out of a bottle, just like right. shooting up when I caught him. I was like, right. whoa, was
1: so Fine. exciting. Um, I heard this uh, interview that you did with Anderson Cooper not that long ago, and he was he was super into like hearing about like your mindfulness practice and how like climbing is sort of like meditation in that it forces you to be so present yeah. with your environment. And it wasn't until you were extracted out of that environment and deployed to Hollywood yeah. that you were that you actually had to like reckon with that, like and realize mm. like. That's part of what I miss about it, and you had to like create a practice around mm-hmm. mindfulness and meditation to kind of ground yourself through the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I got into the uh, the Waking Up app, if you know that, like yeah, the yeah, Sam Harris course. like meditation uh-huh. thing. But um, but I can't remember if I talked about it with Anderson Cooper or not. But um, recently I I kind of abandoned the app and abandoned mm. meditation because I was like. I just don't know if I actually need that. Like now that I'm climbing full-time again. But now outdoors you're doing all the, the thing. You yeah, get exactly. that in a different exactly. way.
1: But most people, you know, are like, they're not living that lifestyle. Right? Totally.
0: Well, I, I think for me personally, I was like, I don't know if I need to practice less attachment, you know, or like, uh-huh. or like be less. Cause like I already give- That's not very, your malfunction.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like that is not
0: my problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I was like, if anything, I need more reasons to like care more to like get amped uh, up more, you know? And I was like, I think the time that I spend meditating could almost be better spent listening to like heavy rock and like thinking about climbing projects and like uh, getting psyched. So, I was like, if anything, I need to be more, more amped, <laughs> you know, like,
1: especially- You create a like, counter-programming app. Well, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> For the too mindful <laughs> people out there. Well,
0: I'm not saying I'm too I'm not, mindful. Yeah, because I, yeah, I uh, you know definitely in the, yeah, I mean, I'm far from like any, Actual mindful practice, like mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it, you know, I found just as challenging as anybody else to like f- stay fully present. But the activity and all is that. what
1: gets you into that headspace.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I just find that you know, hiking, like being, I spend a lot of time by myself in nature, in beautiful places, just kind of like wandering and and in, in my own thoughts. And I'm like, you know, I, th- I think that works enough for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't know if I need to consciously spend time during my day during that, doing that same thing. Right. I and mean, like, I could right. just do it, you know, through outdoor exercise, basically. Yeah.
1: Fair enough, man. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, yeah. Let's, plane, let's go walk outside. Lay down, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. You can yeah. climb up the wall that, on the roof of the building if you want.
0: I might, I might be able to, I'll <laughs> right. we'll have, we'll have to go look outside. Yeah, nice. Well, have fun with Jay. Yeah, we'll see. Just, just another adventure, you know. Every day, you're like, "What an Mm. unusual."
1: It's cool. You live a cool life, man.
0: It's just nice to have variety. Mm -hmm. Variety's the spice of
1: life. Yeah, man. Well, good. Um, Come back and talk to me anytime, dude. No, thank you. Thanks,
0: thanks for me. Always a pleasure to chat. Yeah, nice. Uh, uh, In the
1: meantime, check out Climbing Gold coming into your podcast.
0: If you want to listen
1: to a less professional podcast. (laughs) I don't know. The thing I heard was super polished. This this is the thing, like the new thing with like these like really highly polished documentary style Mm. podcasts. Like that's not what I do, man. I'm I'm old school with this, so. That's what that's that, that's like you're on the cutting edge of like what is working and what well, people really like more to like to. The,
0: the team that I'm working with is on the right. cutting edge. Right, well, I am I am far enough. from it, but fair enough. Yeah,
1: um, cool. Check that out. And Alex is easy to find on the internet. Yeah, just Google him. Yeah, that's it, man. Right? Yeah, that's Anything it. Anything else? How do no, you feel?
0: Just you know, just another beautiful day.
1: Yeah, very good. All right, man. Peace.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis, portraits by Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg, graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda, copywriting by Georgia Whaley, and our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. <laughs>